another fuckedonfilm.com podcast. I am Craig Eastman. With me, Scott Morris. Hello. Andrew Tavendale. Hello. We're all in a room together this week. There's a rarity. It's terrifying. <laughs> I don't know who these people are. Help. Send one help. Of, one of them locked the door and we can't get out. Ah. It's 10 Cloverfield Lane. Montrose. I am going to be your master of disaster tonight because we are talking about disaster movies so uh, and everything that entails, which probably isn't much. So without further ado, uh, we should probably crack on. So then, disaster movies. An interesting genre, not necessarily, <laughs> not necessarily one stuffed with quality and five-star <laughs> material, but an interesting one nonetheless. A, a genre appropriately named, I would uh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> a genre which uh, lends... I've forgotten the words gone right out of my head that I wanted to use now. Credence to the notion that people will watch any old <laughs> No, uh, a genre which has salved our um, conscience over our intrinsic uh, desire to see people killed in horrific and varied ways. <laughs> or is that just me? Yeah, well, there's a lot of people trying to psychoanalyse what we're getting at with disaster films and why they've been relatively enduring over the course of mm. filmic history. Is it our people who are obsessed with their own mortality? Is it people who just like seeing things destroyed? Do people just want to see the world burn, as <laughs> Michael Caine may say about the Joker? <laughs> yes, as we are all pretty much saying now about our current circumstance here in the UK. Um, or yeah. is it, or do they suggest that they want to see people battle against adversity? Although I and die. To- <laughs> battle against adversity and lose it's, I tend to think that it's more this, they want to see things get destroyed but it's about creative deaths that's is, what it's or, about and in the case of um, some of the films we'll cover the death of creativity yeah <laughs> wow it's also a genre which has steadfastly refused to evolve um, other than <laughs> other than in the spectacle afforded by modern yeah. CG it's very difficult to point to any sort of development of uh, or advances in sophistication mm of narrative, of, of plotting uh, in the disaster movie genre. <laughs> strip, strip away the effects from something like uh, San Andreas, which we'll talk about later, yeah. and, and arguably we've taken a huge step backwards, <laughs> if anything. But uh, yeah, we're going to talk about some disaster movies tonight anyway, for what it's worth. It's a genre which for me is a guilty pleasure. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I'm being blamed for this podcast, <laughs> you should know. It's not that I'm a flag-waving member of the disaster movie club, but I do kind of have a soft spot for them. Uh, and their predictability on a quiet Sunday afternoon. Yeah, well, I think initially you'd kind of floated this more as an Irwin Allen joint. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of, I guess I petitioned for to broaden it out so we could see how it's evolved over time. And the answer is, yes, it hasn't. Hasn't. that's yes. backfired somewhat. <laughs> I, was, I think in maybe some respects it's almost de-evolved, like your comments about San Andreas too, but mm-hmm. it, like the 70s high point with Irwin Allen, some of his work, and then everything mm. after that just got so generic and derivative. Um, mm, yeah. It's become worse. Yeah, and some of the more recent ones, which uh, some of which I'd seen in the cinema, and we'll talk about a little bit later, but which I had I haven't watched since, and I had a recollection of them perhaps being a little bit more sophisticated, and actually in going back and watching them recently for this podcast, uh, <laughs> I was alarmed to find that no, actually, no, they're not. Um, and that some of the highlights of the genre remain the earlier films. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I suppose we can discuss that in some more depth as we as we carry on. So let's kick off with Scott. Do you want to uh, say a little bit about A Night to Remember? Sort of bookends one one end of the, yeah, the genre. why not? I mean, it's not the original disaster film by any stretch of the imagination. There was examples long before that, but it's mm. certainly the earliest 
one we'll talk about. Yes, 1958, and it is about the Titanic, which is really yes. about as much of a plot recap as you need. Mm. Um, it was, at the time, and I guess more or less now, it was lauded as being the most accurate depiction that was available at the time. I think essentially that's still the case now. I think there's a few details that might not have happened, but it's mm. more or less the case. Um, and, you know, I was actually surprised when I went back to watch this, well, actually to watch this for the first time. It holds up better than a lot of the other films we'll talk about today. It's got a fairly solid central performance from the, the main point of view character is uh, Charles Herbert Lightoller, played by Kenneth Moore. And I think it's got the, the sense to rely on the inherent drama of a large cruise ship sinking rather than trying to really desperately weld on love stories or anything like that. And I'm not putting that accusation at anyone, James Cameron. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I thought it was actually quite effective. It was made on a shoestring budget for mm-hmm. this kind of film, which if I check here is about half a million pounds, which for comparison, you know, Vertigo's budget in the same year was close to 2.5 million. And so it's a lot of money to be, a lot of, a lot of difference in, in doing it. Uh, there's a few model shots that are a bit of a bathtub special, uh, but mm. the rest of the shots and the actual production design of the uh, Titanic itself, the ballrooms, those kind of things, all look very impressive. Uh, like, well, that holds up uh, particularly well. And... Something I guess I might say quite a bit for the first half of this podcast, even bad practical effects tend to look better than bad CG effects, which we will, <laughs> we will cover at some point in the early CG era. So um, yeah, it's a pretty effective film. I think the great strength in retrospect of this movie, from what I recall of it, it's not one that I've caught up on recently, but dramatically, dramatically from a recollection, actually its strength is that we're not at a point in the genre yet where we have a reliance on spectacle. Yeah. So there is more focus on, on uh, the drama and the narrative mm-hmm. and the performance aspect of it. There are none of the cheesy tropes, really, that we've come to expect of disaster movies, so it's a bit more involving from that uh, from that perspective. Yeah. Um, and it probably plays out... Uh, it's possibly more a rewarding film now, uh, as we look back, given the evolution of the genre, than mm-hmm. perhaps even it was at the time, because now, in comparison, <laughs> it almost feels like a masterpiece. Yeah. And it's... I think it is well-crafted. There's lots of points that are actually relatively subtle, whereas when, mm. when it's first starting to list, rather than anything but well, particularly huge uh, model shots or something, all you get is a shot of a, a trolley in a dining room moving a little bit. And it's, it's quite an effective little tale. It's probably it's infinitely more foreboding than a big CG wave on the horizon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so it's, it's got a lot of like, nice little uh, craft touches through it. And, of course... It's just an interesting story at the best of times. Uh, it also delves into the other ships that are around it that kind of missed it, uh, didn't get some of the telegraph signals that were being held, uh, sent out and a few other bits like that. So it's, it's a very interesting little look at what happened around it and not just the ship sinking itself, although that's handled well enough. Yes. So yes, it's a, certainly something that's worth taking a look at when you can track it down. Yes. Recommended if it's of interest to you. Keeping on a seabound theme then, I suppose the first of the sort of keystone movies that we'll recognise in this genre is probably The Poseidon Adventure from 1972. And it's probably responsible for the, the big budget uh, yeah. proliferation of, uh, of disaster movies that have followed. So, just a brief plot recap of The Poseidon Adventure, but really, <laughs> I think IMDb sums it up quite succinctly. The group of passengers struggle to survive and escape when their ocean liner completely capsizes at sea. <laughs> and this is pretty much the template for the disaster genre thereafter. <laughs> Something bad happens and lots of people try and escape the bad thing. Uh, in this instance, then, The Poseidon, uh, which is, uh, if I recall at the time, supposedly the, the largest... Uh, seagoing liner is on its maiden voyage when it's on its final voyage oh, it's on its final voyage sorry when it's uh, capsized by a rogue wave 
Uh, and that's about all there is to that. The first of the disaster movies really to introduce any kind of big names and rely on like yeah. a selling itself off the back of a star cast. So you have Gene Hackman and Ergus, Ernest Borgnine, Shelley Winters, of course, famously, Red Buttons, uh, Roddy McDowell, uh, so on and so forth. I'm actually, of the films we'll talk about tonight, I'm probably the most fond of the Poseidon Adventure. And it's actually the only one that I ever owned on DVD. I've got a real soft spot for the Poseidon Adventure, and I'm not sure what it is. It is, it is very predictable now, but I think you have to view that through the lens of, yes, well, we're so familiar with the genre, whereas at the time, this was yeah. appreciably something a bit different. Mm-hmm. And as an adventure survival movie, it's it's still sort of perfectly acceptable and probably dramatically still one of the better examples of the genre. Yeah, I enjoyed it enough where I want to watch this or uh, rewatch it fairly recently. I can't remember last time I saw it, a long time ago. It must have been on a bank holiday at some time um but yeah it, oh, it's one of those well. bank holiday afternoon films really, yeah, isn't it, isn't yeah. It? just um but yeah it, it's kind of hinged on this performance from gene hackman for the most part whose enthusiasm i think carries it uh, yes. another thing we'll be saying a lot to this as some of the clunkiest worst dialogue you will see in cinematic history yes, uh, particularly when yeah hackman introduces himself as a, I'm a as a preacher character as well i'm angry rebellious or renegade like that is just the scriptwriter literally telling you the plot of <laughs> yeah. this character directly yes. to your face enough of your facebook profile james yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah it's just reading out the dramatis personae yeah. isn't it yeah. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I'm not interested in how you would like to be perceived. Yeah. I tell you, yeah. and also some of the clunkiest dialogue delivered by Ernest Borgnine in the most shouty yes. way possible. Yeah. Please stop shouting, Ernest, please. <laughs> you mentioned like the star names, Craig, and I think it's Gene Hackman that's still not his best performance. Mm. Gene Hackman that carries this, but Shelley Wentz is actually really game. She's an entertaining character. Yeah, and quite and a symp- certainly a sympathetic character. Absolutely, yep. yeah, and... So, and you just, after she dies, you feel so sorry for her husband, oh, too. Sp- <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> um, like, cause there are some like, real moments of humanity and you believe some of the relationships between the characters, although definitely not Ernest Borgnine's character because he's basically the worst police officer there's ever been. Although, Rogo, it, yeah. It does get addressed <laughs> later, but it's like, you were supposed to be a cop and he just comes completely useless. Um, yeah. But, uh, so after Shelley Winters dies and then there's a bit, and I haven't seen this in a long, long time, when you see her husband and he's trying to follow them along the walkway and they get high and it looks like he's going to go the wrong way and they fall off and oh no mm-hmm. so I'm like, i feel sorry for this old guy's wife just died but he's still trying to get out there is some genuine um, emotion in the characters dialogue's not great it's entertaining unfortunately i couldn't not watch this without with a critical eye um and some of the stuff was driving me crazy like the fact that the the wave that topples the boat breaks at sea <laughs> <laughs> basic misunderstanding like the entire thing's predicated in a wave and a basic misunderstanding of waves also not only does this not only does, not only does this freak tsunami break at sea it does it twice <laughs> so it reforms itself and hits the boat again that can um, happen and uh, so I'm not sure this is a good idea or a bad idea it's something I was very aware of though during the the film, the camera is constantly tilting gently side to side in case you ever forget they're at sea. Yes. <laughs> so you can see the sea some shots and they're on a boat, but no, we have to have the camera tilt like the, the side to side slowly all through the film. Um, that's my thing. I can understand why they were doing that. I just don't think it was necessary, but it stuck mm. out to me. Uh, <laughs> but some of the other stuff though, Roddy McDowell, Roddy McDowell dies midway. On the upside, though, thereby saving the lives of countless innocent Scottish accents. <laughs> <laughs> a bold and noble sacrifice. <laughs> uh, I had to listen to 
four or five different lines from Roddy McDowell's character for and decide he was actually meant to be Scottish <laughs> and not Irish or possibly from Pluto. But is Roddy McDowell on a separate channel of the sound mix? Can I just like pull out? Can I just pull out a jack from the back of the amp? Um, and there are also the other problems too. Like there's exposition chats, which are the exposition version of what you were saying, Scott, about the yeah. It's like reading out the character traits. Uh, yeah. I can forgive it that yeah. for, for the most part, but the genre in particular is not known for great dialogue. Yes. No, so. no. And it does have, it's more for the time rather than the genre movie here, but it has those signs like something happens and suddenly there's a thousand women screaming. Like Maybe not all women would scream that loudly. And it's like, <laughs> that's, it. that's the job of most of the women in these films is to scream. It's yeah. very tiresome. Exactly, by no means limited to the disasters or I will say surprisingly few of them faint yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean again it's, I actually quite enjoyed it I, I don't mm. have the soft spot for, the, for it you do Craig mm. but it's entertaining enough because it's still it's still well produced um, yeah. it's not completely over the top in way something like 2012 is mm-hmm. it's not just pushing it up and up it's about the capsize it's all f- believable enough and the set I was going to say, it's all practical. Obviously, all the practical effects work, Mm -hmm, and it's all, you know, on set. I find the set really interesting, just because everything's inverted. It creates, not only does it just look visually interesting, but it gives you all these quite novel hazards to get across. Yeah, absolutely. You see they're stepping through ceiling panels and stuff, Mm -hmm. and then then even just like some of the the set stuff, like the set in the last, almost the final scene, when they're climbing up the walkway, Mm -hmm. and there's the the pipe for the propeller shaft. It's a really big set and it's mm, really yeah. impressive, but it looks believable. It's like, oh, on that level, it's actually really interesting. But it does have that same theme of trope, I guess, really, that you're going to get in 2012 is the worst culprit of it. We'll get to that, I'm quite sure. But <laughs> the water level rises and it changes speed at which it rises, but they get to the next deck and get fine, then it stops. <laughs> Until they get yeah. off of it, then it rises again. It's almost like this, the water has read the script and knows when and where it needs to be. <laughs> In this genre, it's definitely one of the high points. The, the set design's fantastic. Dialogue, not great, but the performances, chewing the scenery as they are sometimes, yeah. it's it's enjoyable and it makes the difference. You have people like Gene Hackman and Shelley Winters. They're really entertaining to watch. You feel for the characters. Mm. I don't know if it's because, and I've said this in a few other types of films in the past, but the scale, I think, is... It's people on a boat and you can get on with them. Whereas when you have some of the disaster films where they are just... Yeah, where they have um, the technology to destroy the world. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like, yeah. And it, because it, therefore it becomes too big and it's like, oh, okay. Like whenever, yeah, it's, it's more affecting when one character you at least vaguely know dies rather than when 30,000 people fall off into the ocean in a yeah, landslide. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Arbitrary statistics rather than that. Yeah. And also, Absolutely. you know most of these films, like most people are going to get out, but... When it comes to like they're destroying the world, but I'm figuring the film's not going to end with the world being destroyed. Yeah. If it's one boat, you think, well, maybe they could go with not anybody getting out. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it adds that bit more tension to it. I always think, this, uh, and we've spoken about this in uh, different podcasts in terms of raising the stakes and what that means for emotional involvement. But it is it's pretty clear, especially within the disaster genre, that actually the the level of potential for for drama and emotional involvement from an audience is probably inversely proportional to the scale of the disaster portrayed. Right, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll note that in in a few of the other movies we talk about. The other thing I really like about the Poseidon Adventure is it's got a real sort of claustrophobic feel to it as well. Yeah. I believe yeah. I believe the movement of the people in these spaces and there is a there is a sense of the the panic and the the sort of the impending doom that's quite 
for as throwaway a film as it is, it is still quite palpable. And again, I think that yeah. mainly comes down to the set and the camera work and whatnot. But and the fact, that obviously, these people people are chest deep in you know <laughs> yeah. rising water for half the movie. It's very. I'm not going to say it's like super intense, but there is that sense of confinement and claustrophobia and panic quite believable. Yeah, and certainly helps propel things along, provides a good deal of momentum. So. I say it's one of my favourite examples of the genre. It's one that I've got a great fondness for anyway. Whether it's technically the best now, I'm not sure whether I'd say, but I can't imagine there are many people out there who haven't seen The Poseidon Adventure by this point. Uh, it's certainly, I would say, superior to the 2006 remake of Poseidon, all things being equal, uh, although that obviously has the benefit of Kurt Russell, which this film doesn't. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't imagine there are many people who haven't seen it, so you probably already have your own opinion of it. But if you haven't, it's kind of one of those movies you must see. I think if you're interested in the disaster genre, then the Poseidon Adventure is a and possibly the archetype mm. for the, the yeah. genre. It's, it's again for me not the best. Uh, my favorite in the genre we'll get to very shortly, I think. But it gets most of the elements right. It has less wrong than a lot of it, the rest <laughs> of it, and it's sort of a pretty close to high watermark of the genre. Mm. But um, that is not meant as a pun, but I realise now mm. when I say it. I forget, is this uh, one that Irwin Allen directed himself or is he just producing it? I know he basically no, does. he just produced it, I think. I mean, he's always a very hands-on producer, I expect. Mm -hmm. Whether he's credited or not, he probably directed any of the action scenes. Oh, no, actually co-director of the action scenes, yeah. yeah. You're absolutely oh, right. Actually, that's just one thing I want to mention, just because it's, it's so feels so incongruous now, but Leslie Nielsen in her straight role. Yeah, it's, it's puzzling, is it? the captain, it's so weird. Yeah, yeah. He's a, yeah. There's a one scene to, he's, he's in the bridge and let's see in the airplane he was a detective and a captain but he's there with the small boy asking questions mm. like this is this going to be a blow up doll and somebody talking about Shirley because it's going to so wrong. at some point he's going to say I am serious yeah uh, yeah it's a bizarre one that um, but yeah the Poseidon Adventure if you have any uh, interest in the genre then it's kind of unavoidable we'll move yeah. on to one of the other keystones in the in the genre which was 1974's Earthquake which as you might imagine it's I guess it's probably the first of the Notable earthquake movies. I'm sure it's not the first movie to have dealt with an earthquake, <laughs> but dealing with uh, an earthquake which strikes Los Angeles, causing uh, all manner of devastation, adds at least something to the genre in the sense that the sort of narratives over multiple locations sort of doesn't focus on one particular area or one location, but rather isolated groups of survivors in different circumstances suffering from different consequences of the earthquake lend an interest that kind of pastes over the gaps in the the, the the dramatic quality or lack thereof i would argue earthquaker earthquaker whole lot, lot of shaking, shaking going, going on, on down, down there, there. Uh, since i've not seen it that's as much as i can say about cool. it. earthquake is perhaps the the oddest film i think in this list it is strange i mean in most disaster films you will spend approximately 45 seconds talking about the characterization where an earthquake you get 45 minutes of it before yep. anything in particular happens yeah and even then i mean let's uh, right off the bat it was kind of it was designed as a push out for this new um theater auditorium technology right the sense around thing yeah essentially <laughs> um and probably explains why 
dramatically it's not the most cohesive of these films or interesting but there's a number of characters on it another thing i like about this genre is you get some of the action stars with jobs that would never really mean to have action stars so you've got structural engineer graph played by mm-hmm. charlton heston mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of structural engineer skyscraper architects these kind of things who <laughs> would not normally be seen swinging over pits of fire but that's what you get in the genre um, so a lot of it spent talking about his marriage, who's failing to have a gardener's character, and uh, the affair he's having with Shinobi Bejold, and then you've got the cop George Kennedy running around town, just, he's uh, on the outs with his bosses at City Hall who don't like his extreme ways, and then for some reason stuntman Miles, played by Richard Roundtree, <laughs> trying to have it, and then of course... Uh, things <laughs> kick off. Um, it's the man who you'd, you would have hoped would have been the one person to have coped with a, <laughs> with a circumstance within his stride. <laughs> I mean, for, right, all the characters are like total central clearing cookie cutter things, but I still kind of warmed to them, probably yeah, yeah. because I'd watched this towards the end of the, the films that I'm watching, so any kind of characterization at all was welcome <laughs> at this point. So I was crying out. It's almost it. just enough to get to name their profession. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, the film itself is is strange. Like when I went to write up these notes, the first plot keyword listed in IMD page for this film called Earthquake about an earthquake is pantyhose. <laughs> <laughs> earthquake came third on the list, and uh, now some might be disappointed that there's not quite as much earthquake action as they'd like. But there's definitely more of that than there is pantyhose. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I don't remember any pantyhose. <laughs> A lot of the problem is the effects work uh, doesn't really hold up at all these days. Uh, they've mm. not skimped on the number of stunt players. Uh, possibly, I think this might have had the record for most stunt players on set at a time or something like that. <laughs> Probably. There's lots of them, but they're not doing anything of particular interest. No. Uh, some of the wider shots sort of expose how bad the uh, yeah. the matte paintings and all that kind of stuff look. And of and course, anything that shows the side of a building against <laughs> the skyline with yes. part of the building having crumbled away is, is oh dear. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, there's that baffling decision to animate and overlay a cartoon blood splatter on a cartoon <laughs> I'm elevator so scene. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because that's my favourite bit of the whole film. <laughs> Down I wanted right to laughable. bring that up. <laughs> Splat. <laughs> it really just needed a big yellow crazy font. <laughs> a lot of it was kind of inoffensive enough. There's just lots of little oddities that don't belong. The subplot of Major Gortner's National Guard character going mad <laughs> with power. <laughs> people has no business being in here whatsoever. And... For some reason, Walter Matthau gets a cameo on it in a bar, and yeah. his his entire purpose is he will sit and drink in that sort of stereotypical tramp-like way, and it's Double kind of taking stuff while people trip around them. That's the thing. It's sort of <laughs> funny at the, at the start when nothing else is happening, but then, yeah. then later on, people are actually dying around him in horrible ways, <laughs> and he's just going glug 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 glug, <laughs> and then falling asleep on the bar again. Is this Scooby Doo? <laughs> More or less, yes. <laughs> Hustling, hustling decision. <laughs> um, I, do you know what Earthquake is most notable for me now? That, and I remember thinking, being fascinated by it as a kid. And this might actually be the first example of a disaster movie I saw when I was much younger. And quite possibly the reason, therefore, I t- sort of took an affinity to it. Because mm-hmm. at that age, I'm just fascinated to see when you're a kid. It's enough just to have stuff falling apart and people getting, you know, masonry dropped on them and stuff oh that man fell down a lift shaft that's the most graphic thing i've ever seen in my life can't believe i'm eight and i'm watching i'm allowed to watch this now that i'm an adult the thing it's most notable for is it breaks my heart to see ava gardner in this because i've always really loved ava gardner and i find her a fascinating character and it's really woeful to see her here at the arse end of her career (laughs) really sort of just 
I don't know, over, you know, a shadow of her former self in terms of her physical constitution and her, her mm. perhaps more importantly, she was never the greatest actress that ever lived, but <laughs> um, the material she's got to work with here, it's just a kind of really, it's almost just a very sad epitaph to uh, to the woman. And it's, uh, yeah, it breaks my heart to watch it now, but I still find some entertainment value in uh an earthquake. It's one of the. It's one of the better examples of. It's a curious egg, isn't it? It's very yeah. strange, uh, and I, I don't know. It, it kind of works. We know there's a few interesting things about it. Um, just a shout out to Anne Bilston on Twitter, who also thinks that this is quite an odd film. Not just Matthew Gordon's Psycho and some other things. The Love Triangle at the start has mm. no real analog Doesn't, in any other no. disaster film that I can think of. No, and it's unexpectedly downbeat ending, which I think is also an interesting thing as well, because almost every other film we'll talk about when we get to the big disastrous ones, you will have people normally sitting in front of an American flag going, yes, we shall rebuild because humanity is strong and da-da-da-da-da. In this one, you get the doctor character turning next to the cop and say, well, it used to be a really nice city, didn't she? Yep. <laughs> yep. And then it ends. There's no hope at <laughs> the end at all. It's like, yeah, yeah. this city's gone, isn't it? <laughs> well, we run out of film for the camera. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it is bizarre. It's a really funny note to end on. I'm not sure what the... <laughs> I'm not sure what the purpose of that is. It's not something I often think about, actually, the end of Earthquake, but now that you mention it, and yeah, <laughs> it is quite bizarre. I'm not sure, yeah, I'm not sure what the purpose of that is, whether, I don't know, maybe maybe you have some theories on that and you want to email us and, and <laughs> or tweet us and let us know what you think. But yeah, it's very, very much an oddity. But still, if you're a fan of the disaster, I'm going to say this a lot, if you're a fan of the disaster <laughs> genre, it's still a fun enough movie and, uh, I know, I would still be inclined to watch Earthquake if it, if it popped if, up on a rainy Sunday afternoon. If you like the genre and the era in particular, then yes. you could perhaps give it a bash. It is by no means essential viewing for anyone, I would say. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, bit, it's it's a bit bloated. Yeah, I think casual viewers could quite safely ignore this one. Yes. Um, Probably of more merit then than the same year, uh, The Towering Inferno, which drew, mm. I'm guessing you were, is the film you were perhaps referring to in terms was, of the one that you enjoy the most. Would you like yeah. to give us a little recap? Yeah. There's not particularly any mystery to the plot here, well, not with any of these things, but The Towering Inferno is an inferno in a tower. <laughs> uh, Succinct. A new building has opened in San Francisco. It's the tallest building in the world. Ridiculously tall. And Paul Newman, who's the architect of the building, begins to find out that corners have been cut by the son-in-law of the person who owns the building and then begins to um, investigate a little bit and as he's doing it, a fire breaks out and lots of people get trapped. That's it for the plot, really. Now, for me, this is definitely the, the high point of the disaster genre. It's probably one of the most polished. I think it's the high watermark of having the best actors in it because it's got Steve McQueen and Paul Newman and William Holden um, and some sort of interesting support from the likes of Fred Astaire, curiously Fred enough. Fred Astaire, yeah. Robert yeah. Vaughn as well. Robert yeah, Vaughn, that, yeah. That was probably Robert Vaughn and Wagner, both of, yeah. both of which were included for, what, two lines each? Something like yeah. that, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then you've got... Uh, nice fancy, check if you can get I was going to say they fancied a new car or something. <laughs> so, the forever creepy-looking Richard Chamberlain. Yeah. Um, so, like, cast-wise, I think it's probably the high point. Um, mm-hmm. Paul Newman would, would be enough. I mean, it's the only person maybe rival Hackman, but you add Steve McQueen and stuff yeah. too, you've got more... And curiously, it's when like the Poseidon adventure is a very neat, about 90 minutes, something like that, I think. This film's nearly three hours, um, but curiously enough, I didn't feel it. Uh, for me, this just sort of beats along nicely. I think perhaps because... I don't think of it as being that long either, but yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's three hours, but it really doesn't feel like it. Well, not for me, certainly. 
what says that a part of think when let's polish the production the the model shots of the building for the most part look quite good the actual practical sets aren't bad at all it's the fact that yeah, you find out that it's again it's confined space that's it's a confined space it's one building not the whole world mm-hmm. or a whole city or anything it's the fact that although there's, there's a convenience of a, the problem begins with a fire beginning in a cupboard and it conveniently takes hours um, despite being started with some sort of chemical, chemical, chemical yeah, or something, something like that, or white spirit or something. Yeah. It's the world's slowest fire up until it's convenient for it ah. to not be slow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think what is why something like, I don't know, put a different genre, but something like the Day of the Jackal who appeals to me so much is that when you have a character that's simply competent, mm-hmm. it's deeply appealing. And this character, this film has two in particular, although. Paul Newman's the architect, he suddenly turns into electrician and handyman at the same time, although you'd imagine those are a bit beneath him. He's investigating it, he's helping organise people getting out. Steve McQueen comes in, he's this, the voice of soundness and reason. He's really competent, although there is one point where his firefighters wait till they're in the smoke to put in the breathing apparatus, because that's exactly what firefighters would do. That's what they're trying to do, you know. <laughs> Get a good you need to smoke first. But you need to breathe it make sure it is actually smoke yeah. before yeah, you waste any time. I think it's the acclimatization <laughs> process to to fight the fire. You have to be the fire, so you have to take a big lungful of um, <laughs> right. Exactly, smoke. it's very method in a sense. <laughs> so nobody's panicking at the start, and you have these main characters who aren't. There's not any sort of great drama bomb dropped in in that way that you so often get in other films. Mm. It's just like it's completely incongruous. There's a fire and yeah. fire's dangerous. Fire doesn't need anything more. Yeah. And it, it causes an explosion more because there's gas line. That makes sense that there'd be an explosion. There's gas in the building to power cookers and everything else. So you just have Paul Newman sort of being the voice, a quick calm and he's investigating stuff that's going on. It's Steve McQueen sort of just Cam. So when you watch a film like this where mm. people are actually acting believably when they're professionals in their job mm-hmm. and then they, they've got to control the other people who are doing stupid things or and like Richard Chamberlain just um being a complete and utter yeah. <laughs> um and just trying to steal that <laughs> so chair re- at the end. Yeah. So you're reining that in there remembering it's a family show. <laughs> yes, it's a family yes, show. Um, what a get. <laughs> <laughs> it's just for me just High point because of the polish, the acting. Again, some of the the dialogue is a bit clunky. Uh, this Irwin Allen directed this one. Mm, they, I want to say yes. They'd stepped up to the directing chair, um, and Irwin Allen, like the king of the disaster genre, at least. Oh no, John Gillerman. It feels like it was Irwin Allen. It feels like an Irwin Allen, yeah, but no. he's the producer, I think. Yeah, it's uh, another one. I'm sure he did the action scenes for it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah. So he seems to know what he's doing with that action. I mean, those are all com- yeah. always competently handled. Um, yeah, the model shows. It's just it's got a level of polish that. So many of the other films in the genre don't manage. Mm-hmm. It has the quality of acting, and again, perhaps because it's a smaller group and more relatable. But you can un- you can sort of feel for the the characters at one point, and when the the characters go into the lift to try and get out of the floor they're stuck on, and then that woman falls out, and you just yeah. like, oh, oh, and I like, didn't see that coming. Yeah. yeah, when it's when it's thirty thousand people, you just simply can't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when it's one person falling, then yeah, you that's do. that that in particular the 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 women falling out of the lift at that point, I, I still actually find that a little bit shocking and I'm not entirely sure why. I think... I think because actually when they built that character for a while, but she was there for those children. She helped the yeah, children. It's, and it's then, normally telegraphed, oh, this is a bad man. I wonder if he'll be on the kill list for this disaster movie. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, you can see it You can see it coming to Richard Chamberlain. That's yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the women, especially because right after she'd, she'd said to Fred Astaire, 
I knew you were a con man. I don't care. We'll meet in the bottom. It'll be fine. And yeah. then enter Fred Astaire survives, but she doesn't. Yeah. Like, uh. yeah. yeah. So yeah, for me, this is a high point. It's, I think it's well, it's one of the few of these that actually stands apart in a film its own, not just within the genre. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I must be repeating myself for a second. Well, it's just, it seems to get most things right and less wrong than pretty much anything else. Don't really agree. I don't dislike Tower and Inferno, <laughs> but I think it goes on way too long. I don't think the acting's great in it at all. I think Steve McQueen and Paul Newman are spending more time worrying about their position on the credits <laughs> rather than what they're actually saying. Uh, it's um, just infamous for the credits. Yeah. Placing I mean, the credits the, the it's, placement of the names on the poster. Yeah. It's saved handily by the action scenes because all that pyrotechnic stuff is just flawless. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all great and all that going through the fire stuff it looks you know convincing peril um the model shots i don't find convincing at all anymore um but <laughs> I, I i don't i don't particularly pillorate for things like that it's just a chronicle of the time but yeah the, the pyrotechnic work is excellent and that really does kind of is really its saving grace uh, the rest of the film the characters are fine but i can probably take it or leave it i much prefer poseidon adventure which is not to say i dislike this is probably my second favorite on this list it's still uh, perfectly acceptable but i believe that uh, for me uh, poseidon adventures the better in the Allen uh, era. Yes, I, that's, that's just I, my opinion, man. All, I, all opinion. I would add to what you're saying is I probably I probably err more towards Drew's side on this one. I think I agree that I think it runs far too long. It needs at least probably half an hour chopping out of it. But I would agree with I would agree with Drew that I actually find it dramatically a bit more engaging and certainly at a character level mm-hmm. than the Poseidon adventure. And I would yeah, if you put a gun in my head, I would I would say I prefer this over the Poseidon. I've got more of a soft spot for the Poseidon adventure, for one reason or another. But I think I find Town Inferno on a te- on a filmmaking level a more satisfying film, probably. But you know, there's a cigarette paper in it. Yeah, I'm not you know I'm not gonna sort of mm-hmm. go out and wave a flag for one over t'other. But yeah, it's definitely I think those two are definitely the best examples probably mm-hmm. of the genre to this date. Um, if you want to start somewhere with disaster movies, then probably Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno are uh, an indispensable part of the lexicon. I but, just don't uh, know why Steve McQueen didn't uh, unveil his teleporter uh, technology that he had and everything else, because he seems to just vanish around between... He, his, his movement through the fire... <laughs> I is, you were going with that. His movement what reference through, have I missed you? His movement through fire is entirely unimpeded when the script needs it to be, and otherwise <laughs> well, it becomes... That's why he's such possible. a good fireman, Scott. Yes, he can just warp through things. Yes. It's great. It's brilliant. Don't overthink it. He can, he, it's like one scene he's on the top of the, the skyscraper, and the next he's on the bottom, then he'll who, go back <laughs> up and the fire. Who are any, we to say he can't yeah. translocate? Yes. Everyone else seems to have bothered getting down from there, but he's fine about it, so... <laughs> <laughs> As everyone up on like the 45th floor shouts down, tell us the secret, Steve. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, from a yeah, from a from a plot logic point of view, it's not faultless, but then very few films in this in this genre mm. <laughs> we could say anything otherwise about, and some are certainly far more egregious than this. Yes. Um but yeah, one one of the two real mastheads of the of the genre, I think. Yeah. Along with the Poseidon adventure. So moving on then to 1979's Meteor, <laughs> uh, film that <laughs> really just threatened to sink Sean Connery's career, but <laughs> most other things as well. Um, right out of the bat, I would say I have to. I'm Drew. I'm glad you didn't end up watching Meteor for this podcast because I think I had evangelised it somewhat on the basis that when I last saw it. And at mm-hmm. which point I think it was about eight or nine. I was absolutely obsessed with this movie, and I taped it off television and must have rewatched it about a hundred times. I can't remember. 
And so obviously I was anticipating, oh, you know, fantastic. I'm really looking forward to sitting down and watching this again in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I was watching it on an iPad and I wasn't getting the full experience. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm now seriously questioning what I was doing as a nine-year-old, <laughs> that this was an exciting thing in my life. <laughs> It's good that your critical faculties got delivered sometime in the interim. <laughs> it is, and it's it's in many ways, you know, I'm pleased that I'm able to look back on these things and reflect and, and gain something from it. Um, but yeah, so meteor in which um, Sean Connery claims an asteroid because it's not really a meteor. Um, Scott, do you want to... Uh, well, sorry, well, let me rephrase well, that, Scott. Would you please... Yeah, okay. <laughs> if, I, if I must... <laughs> There's a bit of a trope in films about scientists who are upset when their work is uh, uh, taken by the military and used for military applications, and that's uh, what ex-NASA boffin Paul Bradley, uh, Sean Connery's character, has. But I don't think he's got much of a case, given that he was designing an orbital nuclear weapons platform, and he is somehow surprised when when, when the military (laughs) take this and use it as an orbital military (laughs) nuclear weapons platform. (laughs) (laughs) This seems like... Like, these were writing as original intended research purposes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was a weapon for peace. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I, one of the shakier claims, uh, I, I think, for when he goes in front of the Hague. Um, but, uh, but yes, he, he claims this was uh, supposed to be just for defence and shooting down asteroids that are on a collision course, and uh, this turns out to be irrelevant. He's actually brought back into NASA when they are told that one of them is heading towards them, which, if not a planet killer, would be a planet great inconvenience. Uh, so this is essentially them trying to come up with a plan to blow up this asteroid that comes in. In particular, uh, the, the main ge- dramatic uh, gist of the film comes when it, they run through they run their calculations through 1979's best computer platforms available yep. and come up with the conclusion that they won't have enough firepower and we need to get the Russians to do one. That's it. Uh, to we know this because arbitrary secretly. green vector graphics tell us so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Of course, there's some political intrigue because the uh, Americans have kept somehow this mm-hmm. orbital weapons platform secret despite the fact that it looks like a stick with a lot of nuclear weapons <laughs> yeah. attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it really is. <laughs> Somehow people looking through telescopes just missed it. That's it. I assure you it's a communication satellite. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, yeah, so eventually the Russians throw their lot in and uh, try to uh, join Firepower to do it. Now, I think the main problem the Meteor has is the cast, while it's an adequate cast, Mm -hmm. they have no agency whatsoever in anything that's happening. Nope. Uh, All they can do is go to computer and type, launch nuclear weapons, and that is their extent of involvement in the dramatic <laughs> of the whole thing. Uh, and it, it doesn't really suffer from that. I think the, the kind of must have realised this and tacked on like, what, five minutes at the end where, oh, we better have something <laughs> yeah. happen. It's only, it's only really nominally a disaster movie because of the last five minutes. Yeah. So, you know, in the last <laughs> five minutes. At that point, it's a typing and staring at VDU's uh, <laughs> movie. Yeah, so that, basically that is the problem with it. In the last five, ten minutes, there's a, there's a media strike and they're trying to get out and a kind of earthquake-like environment however the bulk of the film is basically people shouting at computer screens yeah. and uh, is as exciting as you'd expect people to be shouting at computer screens to be it's just a pretty dull film lots of waiting around then watching missile platforms excruciatingly slowly rotate <laughs> <laughs> no that was building tension <laughs> um, 
Yes, there really is nothing of interest in this film at all. (laughs) The thing of it is, it could at least have been interesting in the sense that it's got this wonderful central premise of the the game of chess that both sides are forced to play with each other to gradually... Yeah. you know unveil that the other side also has a similar platform and okay yeah. how do we manage to get how how do we manage to work together without necessarily <laughs> our governments conceding that they are working together yeah. there's some there's some basic political intrigue there that could have functioned on <laughs> some higher level yes. but given that that is like 90% of the movie that such short thrift has been played to it the thing that the thing that i like most about meteor is that joseph Camp, uh, joseph campanella's character general easton doesn't give a damn that his son dies <laughs> at the start of the movie. He is so emotionally devoid throughout. I think he sort of gurns a little bit at first, maybe flinches slightly as he watches his son being killed <laughs> in a spacecraft uh, by a meteor collision or an asteroid strike on the on the spacecraft. And thereafter, people sort of pay deference to, oh, sorry about your son. Yes, thank you. Uh, let's carry on. There's no... The, the whole film is so bereft of any emotional involvement. It yeah. is absolutely baffling how you can actually generate such <laughs> little empathy. Yeah, the only one that seemed kind of worked up was was it, was it uh, Lando's character, one of the generals in it, who who's uh, very upset that they're kind of thinking about revealing the prospect of the the, the existence of the, the weapons platform and gets very upset and is immediately kicked out mm-hmm. because, well, that's actually one of the few outbreaks of common sense amongst these films. That's it, <laughs> so, exactly. Yes, if we don't do this, we will all die. Get out. <laughs> and, and a film in which you've got Henry Fonda playing the president. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Henry no, Fonda, <laughs> throughout the entire film, just basically adopts this... He looks like a man who's taken a lot of crack and then just been startled by a loud noise. <laughs> <laughs> He's got this weird... This weird wide-eyed sort of like really sort of like really moist glazed eyes sort of thing going on. It's absolutely bizarre. I don't know what any of the thinking was behind the movie. And even at the age of eight or nine, I looking back now, I have to wonder what was going on in my life that I was engaged by this movie on any level. I think I was just fascinated by anything that was space-based. Yeah. Um, and so I'm actually incredibly glad that you didn't watch this, Drew, because I would have felt terribly, terribly guilty if both, <laughs> both of you had wasted 90 minutes of your time. I mean, it's not Zardoz or whatever the other uh, <laughs> Sean know. Connery was at the time close. was, but it's not, it's, yeah. it's not a high point in the man's career. And, he, uh, yeah. He's not running around in a giant nappy, but it's, it's, <laughs> that's not to say that this film is that much more redeemable than Zardoz. Yeah, I, it's unfortunately an entry that I can't really recommend <laughs> anybody catches up with on any level. And so it probably behooves us to move on swiftly to something else. Um, something equally or, terrible. Or perhaps <laughs> it doesn't. Now, Scott, you, you're a fan of The Swarm. Don't lie, you've got a soft spot for The Swarm. It is the best of films, it is the worst of films. <laughs> Mainly it's the worst of films. <laughs> um, actually, Whereas a- Meteor was so bad, it's bad. The Swarm is so bad, it's good. Yes. <laughs> There's a clear distinction. This is this really only made the list in the last... I beg to differ. <laughs> um, I think this only got back on list uh, because our friends at the Magic Lantern podcast... Erica, Erica Long, Long and Cole Relaine. Um, yes, Erica Long in particular mentioned that she was a, a fan of how terrible the swarm is, and so we put it on because... Well, we have some history with the film um, from the days when we were running around in school doing Michael Caine impersonations ceaselessly. Yeah, that's that's more or less the the history, really. It's just (laughs) yeah, yes. Basically, we liked doing terrible Michael Caine impersonations. The Swarm is about, of course, as you might expect. Well, although I sorry, just uh, before you go, I hadn't seen the Swarm 
until just a few years ago for the first time. Really? Uh huh. Yeah. Oh my it. God! Bees, bees, millions of bees. But one Echo of- one to base. Bees, bees. Well, I was just so disappointed Did he say by bees? the was one of the one of the lines. One of the lines you'd both been like quoting for years isn't even in the film, and I was devastated. Yeah. So this is perhaps where the wheels come off the genre African for a while. African killer bees. <laughs> <laughs> We've been through fire, earth, water, and likes of airport take care of the fourth element, air as well. So the only choice for disaster then, obviously, is bees. bees. <laughs> An unlikely choice for the fifth element. The, in- the industrious worker bee, yes. albeit of the killer African variant. Yes, so Michael Caine steps up to combat the menace of the African killer bee, largely through the medium of shouting, <laughs> as, as top entomologist Brad Crane, who is... <laughs> That's a stupid name for Michael Case. My name is Brad. That's it. I'm Brad. No, you're not. (laughs) And I want to warn you about the African killer bee. So he's, he has found, in a, in a somewhat unbelievable fashion, in the middle of a missile silo, which has, <laughs> has recently been destroyed by bees. <laughs> and, uh, clearly, the work of bees. Uh, so Richard Woodmark's General Slater <laughs> shows up to investigate it, asking, asking Michael Caine if he's an American, with a response, yes. For the last eight years, he has been American. <laughs> Which conveniently explains away my reluctance to do an accent. <laughs> so a lot of the early running is uh, Brad trying to attempt to get the, the higher-ups, including the president, to believe that there is actually a swarm of African killer bees, and he's very insistent right. that they be called African killer bees uh, for some reason. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't be worried about no. it. <laughs> it's very important, I must reiterate, they are killer. There's a subplot which is largely ignored towards the end where Widmark's not trusting Crane. He gets one of his subordinates to keep tabs on him. And I take this to mean that Widmark suspects that Crane is in league with the bees or is perhaps a bee in disguise. <laughs> What's he, he, he is a bee. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's where the line is. It's, it's all right, Widmark. I'm not a bee. <laughs> And so it goes with Crane and the assembled scientists trying to come up with ways to kill the bees without destroying everything around it, where the bees, for some reason, slowly buzz towards Houston, killing everything in their way, because this film has no idea what a bee is or what a bee does. (laughs) (laughs) But they're killer bees, they kill! (laughs) They're not in the business of making honey like regular bees. (laughs) What's especially annoying is that at some point during this film, Crane gives a very impassioned plea that you shouldn't ascribe your human moralistic views to the ex- what a bee will do. And then it's, it's clear that the only explanation for anything that happens that the bees do is because it's been written by a human with no idea of what a bee does. Well, in fairness, it was originally about wasps. Uh, it's a search and replace. <laughs> So, like, wasps aren't so hot right now. People are more into bees. Oh, all right, control F. Right, search for bee, wasp. There's a, there's an almost believable bit at the start where what's happening is oh. they're up in a hive and then someone disturbs the hive and they all. That's why they start going off in a swarm. But everything after that, that's makes, a short movie. 
no <laughs> sense after that because it's written by humans in a really ham-fisted way to make up the stakes, including causing an off-camera nuclear are you, meltdown at a power yeah. plant. Are you, are you, are you ask, suggesting are you it should be written by bees? Yes, yeah, exactly what I was going to ask. Are you advocating it should be written by bees? It glad you mentioned, have been any worse. I'm glad you mentioned the nuclear power station because it's absolutely my favourite bit of that film <laughs> that they somehow cause an explosion at a nuclear power station by, as far as I can tell, irritating a man to flop over a console of buttons. <laughs> <laughs> the self-destruct button. <laughs> oh, no, any button but that one. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. So despite uh, so we should in fact thank our insect brethren for um, <laughs> for showing up the design flaw of nuclear power plant, then incorporates a self-destruct button. Oh my days. Uh, aye, so despite a reasonable budget that's production values are of no value whatsoever, its special effects are in no way special, I think topping out with hallucinations of giant bees mm-hmm. that there's things apparently cause, which I'm sure is 100% scientifically accurate. Uh, you, you don't think the special effects of having buckets full of freeze-dried bees being thrown from off camera <laughs> is amazing use of money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so like despite the nuclear meltdown no meltdown for you on film and nor when the order towards the end is given to burn Houston are you getting any more than six boys running around in beekeeper outfits with flamethrowers sure that'll work because it's a very small place Houston I'm sure that's adequate to treat that particular scenario uh, and it's good that the bees can't fly anywhere <laughs> no it's glad that they can be glad that they've got no means of escape <laughs> So, I mean, uh, I guess Michael Caine is treating this with the contempt that it deserves, but um, it's a, very much a low point in his career. There's a lot of films that we've talked about where the dialogue's terrible. This this is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, at the same time, the best. Yes. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I need to put that back as a message alert on my phone. <laughs> I haven't had that for a few years now. The um, only other thing I really, re- I, just, I don't remember much about this film. For, I think it's just fortunate. Um, it's probably, I, I've saved myself here. The, I think it's probably a nuclear power plant, but the, the coloured suits they wear just made me think of an Intel advert every day when I saw them. Remember those Intel adverts where they play a funky music yeah. white man and always like, oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. like, it looked exactly like that, but from like 20 years earlier. <laughs> yes, this film is hot garbage of the lowest order, but <laughs> it, it's actually the sort of film that I think everyone should see once even if you're not normally the person who subscribes to ironically watching yeah. bad films, yeah. very much this, the, this really does deserve to be seen on yeah. that basis. It's very essential much in the way it's important that we you. teach our children about the Holocaust, even <laughs> these days. You know, uh, I know I disagree, Dale, uh, but thinking back, it's actually it's one of those films probably is really so bad it's good. It's like, <laughs> we can sort of farce watch this thing. <laughs> Special anti thanks to whatever clown decided that home releases should be two and a half hours long rather than the cinematic cut of 116 minutes. <laughs> which is itself 115 minutes too long. <laughs> what are the differences between the home release and the cinematic print? I assume it's much worse because there's more of it. <laughs> I didn't look for a video cut list, no. Well, this film needs us to be fleshed out a bit more. We need to understand the bees' character a bit more. <laughs> we need this a bit is- of backstory behind the bees. <laughs> What's their motivation? Maybe we see some some young bees who are normally in a straight and narrow, but get cultivated by some. That's right. Thuggish older bees. We need to see how the bees are radicalised. Oh my days! Oh, I've really enjoyed talking about the swarm. African killer bees, Black Watch. <laughs> <laughs> it's much more enjoyable to talk about than watch. <laughs> yes. Um, 
perhaps understandably the genre kind of died a death at this point right <laughs> yes and it wasn't until we became a little bit more comfortable with um we got past the stage of proto cg sorry drew no i was going to say because you're saying that the, the 80s more or less no disaster movies have no right they're just it's gone really in the 80s none of, none of any not really yeah um the, re- the revival comes about with the invention of uh or the progression of uh, CG from a from a proto state to a sort of workable solution yeah. to effects work, and I think um, the first example that we're going to talk about from this kind of era would be Twister, which, of all the films on this list, for me is the most soulless piece of filmmaking that we'll we'll discuss. I somehow managed to go and see Twister in the cinema, and I've watched it again since on home formats a couple of times. I think hoping that. Perhaps I was wrong the first time around, <laughs> desperately trying to claw back some sort of. I don't know why I'm tr- I'm trying to do the film any favors by um <laughs> by throwing it a lifeline. But honestly, I struggle a great deal with uh, with Twister, which is a shame because normally Bill Paxton is great value for money. It's one of mm. those films where you you have to assume that everyone involved was doing it because there was some other project they wanted to be involved in, and this was the one for the studio before the <laughs> before the one for you as an actor. And it's difficult to see past the complete lack of script or emotional involvement with any of the characters. Or is that just me? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I struggle to care the slightest about any of these characters. And a lot of it's not explained. Some of the things that are they're meant to give you some uh, emotional... Uh, just as a background, you've got a team of uh, Bill Paxton and his wife, played by Helen Hunt. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct, yes isn't it? correct. Um, is... <clears throat> Leading up a team of tornado chasers who are trying to unleash some new scientific gadget into a tornado to get. But remember, there is emotional involvement because Bill Paxton's got divorce papers with him. Helen Hunt is supposed to be signing. That is true, and no one cares. (laughs) And there's also an evil team of people trying to do the same thing for some reason. Mm -hmm. And there, there's, there's clearly some history between. Bill Paxton, this, this other guy, but thankfully it doesn't bother explaining any of that apart from having them no. almost fight at some point, and then well, that's it, that's that's really it. And that's you know you're it. evil because their little probes that they're trying to release into the Twister, the idea for which they've stolen from Bill Paxton, aren't spherical like Bill Paxton's. <laughs> they're te- tetrahedral? <laughs> like that. <laughs> so basically Bill Paxton has spheroids and um, yeah, <laughs> xeroids yeah, and uh, yeah. the other one have cuboids. Pretty much. It's there for the four people who remember. It's one of those films which, shallow as it is, goes that step further and treats its audience with such disdain and such lack of confidence in their intelligence that everything is over-explained and signposted in advance in the most infantile of terms. (laughs) I mean, for me, it kind of delivers on its promise. It has tornadoes in it. It does. You can tick that one off the list. Mm -hmm. It has an airborne cow. Tick. It has tornadoes (laughs) destroying things. (laughs) <laughs> which I think is essentially all the film promised and that's what it's delivered. Um, True. I remember being really thinking the trailer was pretty cool for Twister mm. and everybody got quite excited about it and then it just turned out to be this empty theme park ride that's a good, what, half an hour too long? Yeah, yeah. like I say, the, the, I cannot care about any of the characters. I like Bill Paxton enough, but apparently not as a lead man or not this leading man mm. at the very least. Um, I don't see it. I've not seen this, but... I find Bill Paxton certainly more interesting in smaller roles like um, yeah. Hudson and Aliens yeah. and um, even like the car salesman in True Lies, something like that. Yeah, yeah. He struggles to carry anything as a leading man. Yeah. It's better as a slightly quirkier character, which is hard to take as a, a yeah. role. Um, so it's purely an effects-led film. 
it's closer to a chase film than a disaster film for the most part. I guess it's an easy, at least undemanding watch, but I cannot for the life of me imagine why anyone would ever want to revisit it uh, mm. at this stage in the game. There's far okay. better, more spectacular examples. Yes, I don't want to visit it at all. And you mentioned Team Evil, and I just feel like I'd rather watch Sherilyn <laughs> Soccer instead. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just checking IMDb trivia here because I remember reading at the time a story about it, and it is, it's, uh, it appears here again about the fact that when they were filming, in order to. Uh, in order to make the skies appear sufficiently dark, yeah. they had to they had to overlight the interiors of the the vehicle cabs. Uh-huh. So they they floodlit with really high intensity lights the vehicle cabs, and Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt had retinal burns yeah. <laughs> because, of, because of the light they were yeah. pumping into suitably contrast. It's nothing else, right? <laughs> Rather than the time you would spend watching this film, go read the at least the Wikipedia page about the making of this film because it is just a. List, a list of sheets. There's more disasters happen and more injuries happen to people on set than there was that made really? its way into the film. It was an absolute disaster. Well, the shooting production's uh, not not a high point in Jan de Bont's career. Uh, I was going to say it was Jan de Bont, right? He strikes yeah. me as such a res- you know responsible guy. <laughs> it just uh, it baffles me that. Listen, I will speak. We'll speak about the volcano movies in a little minute. Uh, we'll, we'll probably move on to those shortly, but. One of the things that really baffles me is that a film like Dante's Peak, I think, I mean, for, for any given Metacritic score, how much stock you put in that, but to some None. degree, it should reflect some kind of reality. Mm. And I can't believe for a second that Twister merits a meta score of 68. No. And something like Dante's so. Peak, which is rubbish, <laughs> but is markedly not as rubbish as Twister, <laughs> gets a meta score of 42 or something like that. It's absolutely oh, yeah. baffling. Because Even the, the the user score for Twister six point three is at least double what it should be. Yeah. Yes, but that's the, the mistake you've made is of paying any attention to that at all. I mean, didn't we I discuss know. this in the yeah, Jack Ryan podcast? It frequently, and we don't need to keep coming back to it. But it's just this. It's just it's that far wrong. Yeah, it's the anti wisdom of crowds, isn't it? It's <laughs> absolutely mental. Absolutely mental. This is, Twister is at best a two star movie. If you want to go in a star yeah. rating system, this is a two star movie. Out of five, probably. Yes, out of five, which is well, if not, if not, if you want to go to ten, I'll probably. <laughs> I'll, yes, do movie. Yeah, oh, I'm not going to waste any more time talking it, about it. Also, one of my favourite MPAA warnings, though. Um, rated PG-13 for intense description of very bad weather. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a piss take. <laughs> as far as I can tell, genuine. But... <laughs> I'm trying to stir up some sort of controversy to aid the marketing. <laughs> I believe the weather in this film. <laughs> I would. It's called Twister. Ugh. I love it. IMDb quotes. Square brackets. Cow flies by in the storm. Joe. Cow. Square brackets. Cow flies by in the storm. It's like beat poetry, isn't it? Woman. <laughs> Whoa, man. So probably because the sequel is finally upon us uh, some 20 years later, we should probably touch passingly on Independence Day from 1996, I would assume, if this is the 20th anniversary. Yes. I can't back that up with paperwork. Um, <laughs> well, you could, but you just can't really be bothered. Yes, yeah. I can't, I've got an iPad to my left and I can't be bothered touching it. Yeah, so Roland Emmerich's first outing into the huge-scale disaster movie genre, which he absolutely would not revisit at any point <laughs> <laughs> until the next time, at which point he claimed, I'm done with disaster movies, until the next one, at which point he claimed, I'm done with disaster movies, at which point... <laughs> <laughs> he tabled Independence Day too. So Independence Day again, is there anyone on the planet who hasn't seen Independence Day? Probably not worth a kind of plot recap. What does it bring to the genre? What does it bring to the table? Well, I mean, 
as we've just discussed, there is some discussion as to whether you would put it into the disaster film genre at all. Mm. I mean, if nothing else, perhaps a slightly defining genre is this is something where a disaster is visited upon us by something you could fight rather than just a force of nature or yes. something along those lines, which does make it different. But I mean, I think if nothing else, it is the poster child. We spoke about the CG stuff earlier, and mm-hmm. this is clearly the poster child for the CG uh, being the spectacle and the, really the driving force as to why anyone would want to go and see anything like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shot of the White House being alien exploded is iconic. Iconic. It's a thing that's but fair also to say. model work, not CG. That is true, but mm-hmm. uh, there's certainly plenty of stuff in there that is, yeah. that is CG. What's surprising about Independence Day is the budget it was made on. The it's one of those films where the arguably the the money is definitely up on screen. They they made pretty good use of the budget, and although some of the stuff looks pretty ropey now, there's still some stuff in there which is halfway decent. Mm-hmm. As I remember at the time, actually, um, it being described as a big budget B movie. And yeah. that's pretty accurate. Actually. That but remains probably the most succinct description and didn't it, of it. At the time it made a, a crazy amount of money though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Was like everybody a, had to see it and everybody loved it. This is one of the films, one of the few films that I went to see more than once at the cinema, I think. I mean I watch it now, I kind of think, oh, I don't think it's I don't think it's aged particularly well. But it's still entertaining. It's a colossal lump of cheese, but I still enjoy it. Yeah. I, I was surprised when I watched it last week, the other week or so. Um it does for the most part, hold up pretty well. The yeah, face was okay. Here's the thing. Mm. I watched this and remember, find it, I mean, it's cheesy but entertaining. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it a few years ago and I, and I, I can't remember why now. I hated it. I genuinely hated it. I, I remember this feeling being so angry about it and shouting at the screen. And then I watched it last week and I was like, yeah, it's all right. So I have no idea where this is. Well, I can't back it up with paperwork. I mean, it's, it's all just the jingoism was, tacked together with cliches, but it, somehow it works because it's it, it clearly is not meant to be taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, it's, com- <laughs> it's a completely ridiculous film because they fly up to an alien spaceship with a power Mac um, and <laughs> plug it in some like, interface with us when most people can't even find the right lead. Um, they're like, which way to end of this USB cable to plug into the uh, alien spaceship here? But it is it is daft, but it doesn't take itself seriously. Yeah, um, no. and and It's one of the rare cases where I think it's, it, if you cast this film with anything other than uh, Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith, it would be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow those two just managed to bring every bit of charisma they've got on screen to a, a plot that, or a script that does not deserve it in the slightest. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. somehow it works. Yeah, there yeah. are... Um, cause I, There's an uh, element of lightning in a bottle there. Bill yeah. um, Pullman, who but I, just, I don't really have much of an opinion of at all, he's kind of there. He's not unlikable, but he's not really got much charisma. Either. He's just a... He's there. You've got... Gert Hirsch as um, Jeff Goldblum's dad, he's quite entertaining, a wee bit of comic relief there, he's mm. quite a, a, a likeable character. Other than that, the characters aren't particularly remarkable, but it's, it hinges so much on Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum. Mm. Yeah. And the fact that they are fun together, they both have a lot of charisma in whatever they're in, is what sells at that and the effects work. Although, talking of effects work, it's possibly this film that's really the progenitor for the ridiculous overuse of seeing well-known landmarks and landmark mm-hmm. cities yeah. being destroyed, which we're all thoroughly fed up of now. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, good, I've just seen New York be destroyed for the 112th time. Mm-hmm. Way, And I think Independence Day is probably to blame for the start of that. Yeah, for once I would just like to see aliens like invade a field or something like that, you know. And how many times can you see the Golden Gate Bridge be destroyed? Well, once a movie, <laughs> as it currently starts. <laughs> <laughs> Man alive. Yeah, we'll talk about that again in a couple of films time as well. <laughs> yeah, it's good fun. I, 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 although it's obviously very lighthearted, um, Scott, you chose exactly the word I was going to use, jingoistic. Um, the, for 
for an international audience, even at the time, the sort of the the flag waving American patriotism was a l- little bit difficult to stomach. I mean, I imagine that played incredibly well on home turf, mm. but um, it was at the time it was a little bit cringeworthy for the rest of us. But yeah, it's easy enough to see past that. There's enough humour in the film, like you say, it does rest very solidly on the performances of uh, Will Smith and um, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, if, adva- if advance word on the sequel is anything to go by, then perhaps Jeff Goldblum without Will Smith isn't quite yes. as engaging. A, a but, question to which the answer is no thanks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think the, the one interaction on Twitter from Tabs, uh, Assassin. A season? That's a tongue twister itself. <laughs> Counted Independence Day as one of their favourite disaster films. Uh, again, also questioning whether it would actually fit into the genre, so it's uh, clear that we're not the only ones who are questioning whether we should be doing it here, but yeah. it, uh, certainly enough things blow up in it to be <laughs> more or less fitting. It certainly fits, Roland Emmerich particularly, but it certainly fits with the more modern disaster film um, of mm. the large-scale destruction, um, like cities yeah. being destroyed and people being displaced in that way, so it fits in from there. Yeah, Obviously, I mean, it's a sci-fi movie, but no, yeah, it's, it, it it's a big start, chunk of it? cheese, but it's it's palatable enough cheese. It's <laughs> not a, not a yes. blue cheese where you can handle just a little bit, but this much will make you sick. Mm. Just to really stretch out a personality there. The So there you go, Independence Day. You already know what your opinion of Independence Day is. Uh, whether or not you saw Daylight is a different matter. Now, I didn't revisit Daylight in the run-up to this, so I don't know, Drew or Scott, have you... I can't remember if I've seen this or not. I saw it at the cinema. Does it have Sylvester Stallone in it? Yes. Is yes. it the one that's in the traffic tunnel? Yes. yes. Right, then I have A, seen this, and B, I've just told you everything I remember about it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the same for yes. me. I'm sorry, Scott. Yeah. Well, I watched it last week and I have probably about the same <laughs> amount to add to it. It's, if nothing else, you've got to expect its brutal efficiency of its setup. Pretty much before the opening credits have stopped, you're showing an illegal toxic waste convoy. And the dangerous car chase, mm-hmm. and like two star-crossed lovers, uh, they, <laughs> they inevitably come together in the New York to New Jersey hall in the tunnel, causing a disastrous cave-in, uh, leaving the tunnel unstable and no longer as watertight as you'd ideally want. A uh, disparate group of people are trapped inside a blocked-off portion of the tunnel, and after dusting themselves off, must think about getting out. First on the scene outside is disgraced ex Emergency Medical Services Chief Kit Latura, Sly Stallone, um, who sets about helping people as best he can, and when the current chief is killed in another cave-in, people turn to him for guidance. He sees the plight of these people trapped in the tunnel, and decides to brave a dangerous trip to meet them, and try and guide them out through a warren of old, disused chambers and tunnels before the whole thing comes crashing down. Uh, despite the difference in setting, most of the time it feels very much like it's directly channeling the Poseidon adventure. Mm-hmm. Particularly when, towards the end, when the floodwaters start rising, it's lifting from the template well enough to struggle its way up to mediocre, and with largely practical effects, that aspect holds up better than a lot of the early CG-reliant disaster films, but uh, there's really nothing that it does that's at all above average, so much so that I can't think of anything more to say about it, so I won't. Mm, that's probably fair enough. I don't remember Viggo Mortensen being in this. Yeah, he's a, he's like a, a is he Roy the Nord. He's the, the the rock climber. I was going to say, is he the one who put the rock climber who, yeah, who's who a bit of arrogantly says, "I know where. If you're, I'm going to climb up here," and then is immediately crushed yes. within the first five minutes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't it's one of those that. kind of rare cases where you know these days Viggo Mortensen he's quite a big deal, and it would have been quite shocking if you killed off your character like that in the first I think fifteen minutes or something yeah. of it. Um, but of course, back then he wasn't. So it was just another another, <laughs> yeah. another bit of cannon fodder for the day. <laughs> yeah, I remember this being very, very throwing and, and unengaging anyway. Um, and I think 
I'd gone to see it with a group of friends at the cinema and even walking home from there there was it was hard to muster up more than five minutes discussion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, 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 like I say, it's average. There's some interesting bits. Like, there's a, there's something about a, a refreshing absence of too much macho posturing for a lot of it. Right. Um, where uh, Sylvester Stallone's character is not, like, all domineering alpha dog. He's open to taking suggestions and listens to people and all that kind of stuff. But uh, at the end of the day, nothing even remotely interesting enough to warrant anyone looking at this again. Perfectly acceptable date night stuff, but nothing particular <laughs> that you need to dig up. Uh, what was this? Was it 20 years, pretty much? 96, yeah. Yep, uh, after the fact, yeah, no. Give that one a miss. <laughs> yes, moving on to 1997. Dante's Peak. Um, the, the first of the movies we'll look at in the competing themes from competing studios yeah. uh, thing that happened amongst, <laughs> not just disaster movies, but here in particular in disaster movies that happened in the late 90s anyway. Pierce Brosnan is a volcanologist who arrives in an, an idyllic town to monitor some uh, volcanic activity and, of course, is um, poo-pooed by his boss when he recommends putting the town on evacuation alert because his boss has previous experience of having felt that way about an impending uh, eruption, which didn't happen and all it did was wreck the economic viability of the town thereafter. Um, Of course, people probably should have listened to Pierce Brosnan because... (laughs) Hashtag trust Pierce. Yeah, exactly. Uh, people probably should have listened to uh, Pierce Brosnan's character, whose name completely escapes me now, Harry something. Harry, Harry Dalton. Dalton. Um, because, of course, he is right. Yeah. And all sorts of volcano-related nonsense uh, thereupon happens. <laughs> Very standard fare. Again, I have a fonder recollection of Dante's Peak when I saw it at the cinema than I do now having revisited it. And I was actually a little bit disappointed at just how standard and disengaged uh, I was by the movie. I seem to remember Pierce Brosnan being far more charismatic and his relationship with Linda Hamilton's character, the mayor of the town, being a little bit more involving, them having a little bit more chemistry. Yeah. But really, um, there's... It's a waste of both of them, really, isn't it? A wa- an absolute waste of both of them, which is a shame. And crucially, I misremembered the bit about the pyroclastic cloud. I was disappointed to go back and realise <laughs> that I'd been pr- trying to, forever been trying to practice an impersonation of Piers Brosnan, and I can't get anywhere close to it. I'm really <laughs> frustrated. And one of the things I practice is shouting the line, it's a pyroclastic cloud. <laughs> he doesn't shout it. I totally misremembered it. He just says it very, very calmly. It's yes. a pyroclastic cloud. <laughs> See, nothing like Pierce Brosnan. I don't even know who it is. Um, So I was upset about that. What's notable about Dante's Peak is there's a very budget of over $110 million, if I remember correctly. I remember at the time thinking, wow, that was, for 1997, that's a big-ass budget for a movie like this. And some of the effects work, some of the CG work with the lava and whatnot holds up relatively well now. Certainly better than Volcano. By oh, a long yes. way. Oh, we'll come to Volcano. <laughs> um, and it's specifically the effects work in Volcano. So some of that stuff holds up really well. However, there's a really weird thing going on where some of the other effects, and it's primarily stuff with the stuff that really sticks out, and it really takes you out of the movie in the jeopardy, especially when there are things like rubble and boulders and, and mm. you know, sort of volcanic boulders from eruptions falling out of the sky. Anything in this movie where a rock has clearly been fashioned out of styrofoam (laughs) has no weight to it (laughs) whatsoever and it's literally a case of i sat there thinking about it the other day i'm thinking literally all they would have had to have done would have been to over crank the camera a couple of frames a second Mm. so that when playing it back slow it down a little bit 
it would have had so much more so much Momentum, more weight yeah. to the and bizarre really strange nitpicky thing to pick on but also the the plot holes in this movie are absolutely baffling as <laughs> as are the magically fire resistant properties of the tires yes. that Pierce Brosnan has on his Toyota pickup truck and we all know how reliable Toyota pickup trucks are but his tires do eventually melt in lava but it takes him a good couple of minutes <laughs> contrary to what I as I am no volcanologist but I understand how heat works um, and I've bought enough tires in my time you've made enough toasty cheese to understand basically <laughs> yeah exactly right there's some there are some really weird plot holes and just complete inconsistencies and and nonsensicalities in this movie that when I go back mm. and watch it now I'm surprised at how detracted I was uh, by them it's by no means the worst movie we'll see on this list but it's a real waste of the talents involved and probably it's I'm not going to say don't watch Dante's Peak I am. It's a it's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a three star movie at a push it's north of Twister let's put it that way but it's by no means uh, it's yeah. by no means an essential. Yeah, I don't hate it, but given that the main human interest comes from Dalton trying to help Wanda and the kids mm. rescue their bafflingly idiotic mother-in-law. Yeah, it's like who seems to be thinking of this kind of weird magical thinking thing of the volcano won't harm me because I'm its friend or something like yeah. that. Yeah, makes some sort no of, I don't even think there, I don't even think there's that much logic behind <laughs> the decision to stay put. Yeah, but yeah, like you mentioned earlier, the relationships have no charisma and. Whether it is just a, a side effect of DVD artifacting, I mean, I suppose it's, I guess, scientifically accurate that when a volcano erupts, there will be a lot of soot in the air. But between it and it being dark, there's a 30-minute section of this film where I might as well have closed my eyes. There's, <laughs> you cannot see a goddamn thing for half an hour of this film, and that's very difficult to really, to really care about a film that you can't actually see. Not great. <laughs> yeah. I, I was worried that because when I watched this recently about a week ago or something in preparation for this, I'd watched it on an iPad and I thought to myself, oh, is it just that thing of I should have really have watched this on the biggest available screen? So I'm, I'm, glad, to, I'm glad to hear that you, uh, <laughs> you suggest possibly the problems yes. it has or otherwise. Yes. The, 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 the spectacle is uh, somewhat obscured when you can't actually see any of it. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, bit of a pain. Some um, of the, some of the, you can see where some of that budget's gone. I could imagine a lot of it's down to location work and stuff, right? And the expense yeah. of working on location in some of these places. But there's a real sort of disparity between the top end of the work that's been done and some of the stuff, which still holds up well enough today, and some of the other effects work in it, which is kind of, yeah, almost <laughs> B, almost B movie level. And this weird thing, correct me if I'm wrong, right? Unless I miss something. The whole thing with that ELF transmitter yeah. that NASA wants them to test for reasons that are never explained why <laughs> NASA wanted to give an ELF transmitter to some volcanologists yeah. to test on their behalf. Correct me Space if I'm... volcanoes, obviously. Yes. <laughs> correct, me <if> I'm, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but he takes a detail. He puts the lives of himself and the mayor and her two children at risk going to pick up that ELF transmitter on a whim at one point because apparently he knew in advance that he'd get stuck down a mine afterwards and would need it to help people locate where they are. Isn't that what happened? I can't remember it well enough to really care about any of that. I sat detail. scratching my head for a good five minutes after them. Like, wait a minute, what happened to causality here? What happened? <laughs> How did Pierce brought? Oh, wait a minute, he's got the script. Of course he knows what's going to happen. There are some really baffling things in this movie like that that make no sense also can i just say spider legs the piss poor design of a robot designed to clamber down <laughs> the, the steep and rocky sides of uh, yeah. a volcanic crater which clearly 
has the worst arrangement of um, <laughs> of articulation for achieving that task. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. But yeah, I was a bit disappointed because I remember at least finding this passable at the time, but there aren't. there's not even really the satisfaction of any particularly spectacular deaths or anything in this movie. I no, think that's in where fact, it falls flat. In fact, one person dies in the whole film. Right. Uh, they, they, no, two, sorry, no, two. No, a couple. Yeah. Two. Uh, they explicitly say that everyone else got out safe, but uh, one yeah. of the, you know, is Dalton's boss and yeah. the aforementioned stupid the grandmother. Like, oh, and there's two and people his wife in a, at the start. Yes. Because remember Dalton's tragic backstory. And like, come and think about it, there's two people in a hot spring that got unexpectedly right. hotter uh, just before yeah. the main thing came out. That's one of the clues. about sous vide. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so that's your death toll from the volcano eruption, which is uh, quite, quite respectable. Well done. They did their job well. They got everyone out in time. So, you know, they did. fair play they did. to Pierce Brosnan. If there's ever a volcano erupting, I want him in charge. He's, he's done a good job. If ever I need someone to identify for me what type of cloud something is, especially if I'm concerned that it might be a pyroclastic cloud, <laughs> I will call on Pierce. Um, so come on then, Scott. Let's talk about Volcano, shall we? <sighs> <laughs> or Drew, do you want to talk about Volcano? No. With Tommy Lee Jones, isn't it? It has. And a volcano? <laughs> it has. Not in the traditional sense. Again, the La Brea is- tar pits. This is all that I remember, and I've seen this film, but I, I genuinely remember nothing of it, and I have a very good memory, so I, I admire think you, that sir. tells me everything, because I haven't rewatched yes. this. Yes. I admire you that. You're, you're clearly getting rid of the least important bits of your memory to hold you more <laughs> yes. important stuff. Uh, this conversely, Volcano, my memories of which have always been terrible, and revisiting it thinking, it can't be as bad as I remember, <laughs> only to find out it was possibly even worse. 97's other magmatic offering, Volcano. Um, Tom Lee Jones is Mike Rourke, the head of the emergency management office, uh, dealing with a small earthquake that triggers something much worse as a volcano, kind of, forms in the Los Angeles tar pits and starts bothering the city with lava flows. Uh, it's up to Rourke and his team to try and come up with a plan to stop the lava, minimise the death toll and also keep his daughter safe. Part of that team is passing geologist Dr. A.B. Barnes, played by Anne Heck, and Rourke's deputy Don Cheadle, and the usual ragtag parcel of pointlessly obstructionist functionaries and obvious lava fodder. The main thrust becomes a scheme to drive the lava into the sea, which I think is called the Bridger Doctrine. <laughs> that's that's <pretty> an Italian <laughs> job. <laughs> and, and what lava it is. Yep. What crappy-looking lava it is. What roundly unconvincing crappy-looking lava it is. What yellow, underlit, watery porridge it is. And as the only card this film has to play is lava, it's a bit of a busted flush. Uh, (laughs) Tommy Lee Jones is here doing the usual Tommy Lee Jones gruff act, which is fine, I suppose, but in no way remarkable. He and Hetch uh, should be commended a little bit. Their double act has at least some mild chemistry, despite some of the clunky's dialogue we'll mention in this podcast, which is not short of clunky dialogue. No. Uh, Science-wise, effects-wise, it's almost veering into the ironically enjoyable, but not quite. It's not bad enough to be funny or interesting, and if nothing else, we've learned that volcanoes shouldn't be seen in the cinema because reading this and dandy's peak there's really not a lot of interest between the two and uh, yes another one that you can quite safely skip over i am baffled by the fact that this the budget of this still 90 million dollars so by no means a small budget mm. but it could look so bad yes <laughs> um especially some of that stuff with uh, at the end with the building detonation and stuff like that and we're like, oh my days the only the only part of this film and i remember being quite shocked by it at the time 
the only thing this film has going for it is that Norm from Fargo <laughs> buys it in quite spectacular style <laughs> and in quite haunting fashion, actually. Yeah. And at least it had the courage of, of the conviction of killing one of its characters off in yes. quite a brutal fashion. I mean, I don't know if that's scientifically accurate the way that happens either, but I mean, it's I don't it's think memorable. it's scientifically accurate either, but it's awesome. It's absolutely <laughs> awesome. The other thing is that very much like Paul Giamatti in San Andreas, <laughs> you, Don Cheadle... In this film. Now, normally you could put Don Cheadle in a film yeah. and he will be the one thing that you can yeah. go, oh, well, at least Don Cheadle was good. Not yeah. even Don Cheadle's particularly good no. in this film. <laughs> and that's not Don Cheadle's fault. That's entirely the script's fault. Yeah. So if even Don Cheadle can't salvage any kind of value from this whatsoever, that's probably all you need to know. Yeah. Really, really underwhelming, stupid film with... <laughs> really particularly poor effects work. Who directed Volcano again? I'm not convinced it was. Mick Jackson, who I can't <laughs> think what other films Mick Jackson is known for. He's just it, not Mick Jagger. That doesn't make, make more sense. <laughs> yeah. Mick Jagger's director of 34 movies, none of the rest of which you'll know. <laughs> no. I wonder why he didn't get any work after this. <laughs> oh, he directed The Bodyguard and Steve Martin's LA Story. So, so you could safely say this killed his career, which was at least somewhat promising at that point. LA Story's not bad. The Bodyguard is not my cup of tea, but it's not a lot like people like it. It's at least popular yeah. and yeah. yeah, has held in some regard. Yeah, absolutely bizarre. Just a complete misfire of a movie from absolutely every conceivable angle. Very much in the bottom half of the list. Uh, <laughs> if not firmly holding the rest up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah. Acting as a firm foundation. Um, so let's go on then. So the other big piece of parity we have is uh, between asteroid movies that yes. popped up around this time. Indeed. And that would be Armageddon and Deep Impact. So we'll talk first a little bit about Armageddon. Drew, give us a recap for, the, for those who haven't seen it. It's Armageddon. Um, and given the, the, the depth that this film goes to in its spotting, I'm sure this will be a very long recap <laughs> with lots, yes. of, lots of intricate details. About- I think it's, um, it's going to be at least your four words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Armageddon. There's a big asteroid going to come and hit the Earth and they try to shoot out of the sky. What a recap done. Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs> yeah. So, in marked contrast to Deep Impact, and it's gonna kind of hard to talk about these separately. Mm-hmm. Really compare them mostly mm-hmm. throughout. Well, let's let's okay. So on that note, then let's do let's do a contrast and compare. So Armageddon, Bruce Willis as a deep sea oil driller, uh-huh. mm-hmm. an expert in his field, who of course naturally is sent into space <laughs> yes. to blow up an asteroid. Yeah. I mean, it's a- Michael Bay directs. <laughs> That's pretty much all you need to know about that. Deep Impact. Which, I th- if I remember correctly, was greenlit before Armageddon, uh-huh. but came out later, is very much more a more realistic take well, on the end of the world asteroids. More it, measured, it, perhaps. Uh, more measured. It's at least aiming to be... It's plausible. Yes, yes, yes. It's at least aiming to be mildly plausible and at least a little bit more considered um, and realistic from that perspective. Some of the same... Some of the same plot elements, obviously, beyond the asteroid, the impending asteroid strike, but very much more interested in the human story aspect, I yeah. suppose. Yes. Of- yeah, so that's, um, that's I'm starting from there. Yeah. Okay. Now, I remember at the time when they both came out, I was kind of bored probably by Deep Impact. I wasn't impressed mm. by I was as well, yeah. Um, whereas the... Armageddon blows up! Yeah! Yes, um, I found Armageddon, certainly from the cinema point of view, much more entertaining, the spectacle, etc., the bombast of it. It was 
yeah, I, I appealed, that appealed more to me. It was just a cheesy blockbuster, but fun. I very much do not feel that way yeah. now. Um, what I'd like to say is I don't think we should underplay the spectacle that Armageddon managed to deliver because I hadn't seen Armageddon at all until last week. Um, it is one of the most vastly cut movies yeah. I've ever seen. I mean, I think even Michael Bay backed off after this. Yeah. There is no scene longer than, I think, five seconds in yeah. the whole film. It's really... Including bang, 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 lingering bang. romantic moments. <laughs> yes, um, and, and it really is the most vastly paced bit of cinema I think I've ever seen. And it's... It is almost overwhelming. I think Roger Eber called it an, an assault rather than a film, and I can kind of see that. I know, but compared to say is, the Transformers films, you can actually follow what's going on as opposed to yeah, no idea what's better, happening. It's better crafted, but it is you know, visually almost overstimulating. Mm. It, is, it is a direct hit of sugar. And oh, yeah. uh, it, when you watch it the first time, I, mean, I actually quite enjoyed it the first time because it was the first time I'd watch it. And it is just on that level alone of it being such a... It is one of those high octane thrill rides that you you hear about so it's often. It's audacious. Uh, it really does batter out. Um, so you I don't think we can really underplay that. I suspect when I go and watch it again, I will not like it anything like as much. Yeah, I really um, think, and with the exception of The Rock, it's Michael Bay's best film. Um, I know mm. that's not that's a bit of a backhanded compliment. Yeah, but <laughs> I like. I feel like at least with this, he was aware of how ridiculous the entire plot, how ridiculous the material was. Oh, yes. And the notion, a stupid film. The notion <laughs> was that he should just rush, not give you time to stop and think about it, which makes sense. But at the same time, just a wee bit less cocaine, Michael. Yes. Yeah. Or a little bit um, more thought. I mean, it should so, not be the sort of film where you, where someone wrote it down, Steve Buscemi has space dementia. And people went, yeah, that, looks, that sounds fine. Let's yeah. shoot that. Yes. yes like, and then space, space dementia. dementia is possibly the most <laughs> ludicrous thing I've heard in a long <laughs> time. And I've forgotten about that um, when, until I was watching this film again. Space dimension. Kudos to and William Fickner for saying that line with such a straight face. And a Gatling gun in space. One of the more practical means of drilling. I can understand why you would take it. And it's, like, it's good how it works without oxygen too. Mm. Any handy. Um, right, but so back to comparing them. Um, so a very similar premise that in terms of like similar to the um, the dinosaurs, the meet the asteroid away at the dinosaurs, Another similar um, planet killers heading towards Earth. Except yeah, he is upon us. It's a good comparison this to begin with because everything in Armageddon space like turned up to living and it's ridiculous. Everything blows up except the planet. Bits of the planet blow up. Okay, so the <laughs> Just both, not the planet, everything else um, blows up. Both films sort of give you an idea about the one, the meteor that is thought to have wiped out the dinosaur 65 million years ago. Thought maybe six miles-ish, something like that in diameter was that massive crater the Yucatan in Mexico and so in Armageddon or sorry in Deep Impact to say this new meteor uh, our asteroid that we've detected through the telescope coming towards Earth it's about eight miles long a bit bigger than what they killed the dinosaurs size New York City okay but no that's not enough for Armageddon mm-hmm. in Armageddon it's the size of Texas mm-hmm. so that wouldn't just wipe out life it would probably break the planet in two crack the planet <laughs> yes um, so everything's like that Deep Impact again, Deep Impact, they have maybe 18 months notice. So they start building a specialised spacecraft, they work things out, they prepare the the safe places underneath the limestone hills in Missouri. It's a much more measured film that you saw. It's it's closer to what an actual response to something like that might be. You have like the lottery even, that makes sense because you know they're not going to save everybody. The... Mm. um, they try to prepare things, they freeze prices. <laughs> it's kind of thought out, actually. Yeah. It's, 
unbelievable. So you have 18 months. It's time to build the spacecraft, train the astronauts, send it, <laughs> prepare but, them. In, but in Armageddon, <laughs> it's important for the plot that people don't think about it that much. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's not unique. Even uh, Ben Affleck points out in the commentary, but the, just the sheer audacity of having NASA not being able to build a drilling rig, of all things, <laughs> NASA, that, yes. that necessitates... Instead of training astronauts to drill, having drillers become astronauts in what a week, yeah. Yeah. a long weekend. Everybody, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah. But so just some, just going to time scale just now. So our deep impact, eighteen months, measured response. Armageddon, they have eighteen days. Uh, eighteen days, I think. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. like slightly fewer than that, and thirty-six hours of that is lost getting these people off the. <laughs> oil rig in the first place yeah they started with the fact they wanted it to be oil rig people for some reason <laughs> yeah. they worked backwards what's the only circumstance under which it was if we had no time <laughs> yeah. and everybody was just in such a panic they went whatever it's an idea these highly trained astronauts who are some of the most gifted intelligent and physically capable people in the world they've been trained for years they're psychologically tested they can turn their hand to more or less anything but no not good enough to teach them how to use a drill when um, and NASA, it's got to say, NASA can't build a drill, but apparently they can build a space shuttle, which they just happen to have two of lying about mm-hmm. handy. Good <laughs> prototype deep ones. In, deep in back, they have to build one, but they've got a year and a half, you know, eight, like 18 days in Armageddon. But no, they happen to have a couple in storage. Oh, that's yeah. good. Um, that's yeah, the janitor, which cupboard they're in. It's <laughs> so, so, so ridiculous that they have these. Um, Instead of taking the astronauts and teaching them how to drill, which is going to take them a morning because they're geniuses generally. Uh, well, no, we'll take all these um, drug addict, criminal roughnecks and we'll send them into space instead where they can get space dementia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that clip Scott mentioned it. Um, it was going around the Twitter um, a few weeks ago. So it's it from a Armageddon comedy, so it's not new, but it's, it's deeply entertaining. Ben Affleck says he's asking Michael Bay all these questions and Michael Bay's response is one step shy of him sticking his fingers in the ear going, no, 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 I can't hear you. <laughs> stop, stop asking entirely reasonable questions, Ben. Shut up. The mistake you're making, Ben, is that you think I attributed thought to this. So, <laughs> oh, so um, again, it's about the spectacle. Um, what you deliver on? Um, it I mean, it's not an the, only, the only way to handle that material in the way that's presented by everybody is to rush through it and yeah. try and stop the audience from thinking about anything because now once you've seen it once yeah. you can hardly watch that as anything other than a comedy now yeah uh-huh. <laughs> I mean so you've got the spectacle of like New York City being destroyed again of course oh if a piece um, of if a piece of pre-asteroid impact space debris is going to land anywhere on the planet it will be on top of a landmark yes <laughs> it's not going to land out in the, the tundra the home in them the home oh, in them. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sat nav. Yeah. So you've got that and then you've got the the all American heroes and um There are a lot of stars and stripe banners flapping yeah, around it, in slow mo in the backdrop of this it's movie. It's very gung ho yeehaw Americana stuff, but I've got down goofy cornball antics, which seems to be about yes. as <laughs> succinct. Succinct. Yeah. yeah, because I mean otherwise you can't buy out Owen Wilson as a person going into space to save the world, can no. you? No. This was a really um, early role for him as well, right? And well set not a really really early role for him, but it's the first time I think we'd seen him in a big budget production. Um first well, time he came well, to my so attention. Around I think. about the same sort of time as Behind Enemy Lines? Yeah, no, Behind Enemy Lines was after that. Is it? Yeah. But it might be in two thousand or something like that. Something I think. like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not far away from it, I don't think. But I mean what what sticks out for me this more is actually Ben Affleck's performance, which yeah. is it's kind of his difficult third album uh, status okay. of his career, isn't it? He he kind of had a, a good couple of turns very early on with Matt Damon, although obviously Matt Damon 
history's proven is a much capable, more capable actor at the time. And mm. well, Ben Affleck's now very good. Uh, he went through a phase of just putting in these bland anodyne, mm-hmm. anodyne performances. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this, this is one of them where Ben Affleck's character has no character. Yeah, I think uh, once we got to the sum of all fears, then I, then suddenly the Affleck that we know now uh, yeah. had appeared, but between See, Good Hunting was, and then... It was, for me it was a paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You always said that with a straight face. Ah. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly, so you've got this like rush to do it in Armageddon. It's all about just getting onto the asteroid. In that sort of part of Deep Impact, it's that's fairly minor. It's more like the get setback after setback. The, mm-hmm. the asteroid bit's fairly minor. And it's all about the response of people to what's happening yeah. and how it affects society and how it affects relationships. And it's so much more interesting on that level because mm-hmm. um, it's not visually exhausting for one thing. Mm-hmm. Though in Armageddon's defence, there are a few entertaining bits. I wouldn't say the same as good, mm-hmm. but Armageddon does have Peter Stormare chewing every bit of scenery you can find his, um, <laughs> get his teeth on and it's fantastic. It's mental. It's, it's so ridiculously over the top. It's like Peter Stormare was the only, apart from maybe Steve Buscemi, the only people in the film who knew how ridiculous it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because Bruce Willis is, it's not his best performance, but he's taking it far too seriously. But Peter Stormare is just, I'm going to have fun with this and run with it. Mm. Um, so it's not, like, it's not one of these films that I would dissuade anybody from watching if you've not seen it. it it's daft fun. Big cheesy blockbuster. It's one of Michael Bay's tolerable films. And Peter Stormare alone is just probably worth the price of admission. Which is probably nothing nowadays because it'll be on a streaming service. But just um, running around thinking, this is ridiculous. Nobody else seems to realise I can get away with this. Mm. <laughs> well, Armageddon, Armageddon is Bruce Willis and Billy Bob Thornton and Deep Impact is Robert Duvall and Morgan Freeman, isn't it? And that's yeah. pretty much all you need to know. Yeah. yeah. You know, much more considered. The cast is so much better, better in yeah. Deep Impact, yeah. 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 A really uh, James, Cr- and even like, uh, I mean, that's what made what's so remarkable about Deep Impact is there's a Taya Leone in it, and she's not terrible. Mm-hmm. And this was like maybe like the year after yeah. Bad Boys or something. That's right. um, and she gets a nice, at least certainly a poignant conclusion to her yeah. story arc, which is. Um, I mean, there's some people like Vanessa Redgrave's more or less wasted in this film, but you do have some good support from the likes of James Cromwell. Fairly minor role, but it's James mm-hmm. Cromwell. He's mm-hmm. always carrying an air of authority. Yeah. Around about the same time as Green Mile, so I think his star was on the rise in early confidential Green Mile, this, that sort of time. Um, yeah, Morgan Freeman. It's, even in Dreamcatcher, which is terrible, Morgan <laughs> Freeman's Morgan Freeman. It, it raises <laughs> they, things a wee bit. They get considerably more performance for their dollar um, yeah. deep impact than they do in Armageddon. Yeah. I mean, Elijah Wood is sort of one of the major characters, and he's still quite young at that point, but he's watchable he's not enough. He's that it's, engaging. It's but not, yeah, it's not, but it's not awful he's um no it's and he's still he's a teenager basically so it's yeah. kind of hard for him to be it's a, it's a nice interesting kind of story art for him and for um is it lily sobieski lily sobieski yeah. she's actually kind of bland in it um but does get to deliver one of the worst lines i've ever heard though which is nobody in our neighborhood discovered a planet killing asteroid before more or less that oh, okay <laughs> we've all yeah. been in a position to say that um, sure at one time or another uh yeah i think very much one of those things that as a as a hormone adult Teenager, I'm sure Armageddon, well, late teenager, I suppose not as hormonal, <laughs> but um, Armageddon was more appealing to appealing to the senses. But now, from a slightly older, more considered, 
twice as old, unfortunately. Uh, considered point of view, uh, I think there's more value to be had and more to be said about Deep Impact. Mm, Deep Impact has more substance. That's the thing. It, it's, it's more, cons- I think Scott used the word, it's more considered. I mean, it was you, Chris, sorry. But, and yeah, because it's really focusing on how people would deal with that rather than it being flag-waving heroes going to save the day. Yeah. And it Although does happen a bit them, in the end with Robert Duvall. And it works Duvall, much better than in Armageddon. Yeah, um, Robert Duvall sort of yeah. sacrificing himself, him and the crew. Better acted, it's better written, it's better directed. Um, is this is this the only film on the list that has like, got a female director? I think so. Um, yeah, I don't know if that causes not correlation or anything like that. But, no. Um, yeah, it's uh, clearly on pretty much any level a better film. Perhaps a less fun film than Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Certainly yeah. the first time we watch it around, but I mean, clearly it is in every other... any any criteria that you have for it, it is better than yeah. Armageddon and it certainly didn't deserve to be pasted. So it's it's, far, more in, it's office. far more interested in the human aspect of look what's going to happen when our species becomes up, you know, almost extinct. Yeah. yeah. What are the ramifications of that then? Ah, but Bruce Willis in space with a nuke. Yeah. It's because it doesn't go, again, it's going to be something we'll talk about in a few films time um, in terms of creating an arc of sorts where you um, save <laughs> um, the seeds and animals and things like that. Deep Impact gets it right. It's like, it, it, mm. it's all fairly believable mm. uh, how they would do it. Like, I think flying to an asteroid is the least believable part of it. It's something those films, yeah, I'm not sure that's feasible. But everything mm. else, the preparation, um, expecting the tsunami, that sort of thing is, it is believable and you just get invested in the character so much more. Also, perhaps it does deliver by, uh, it is the, the archetype of the, as I mentioned earlier, we will rebuild speech from Morgan Freeman at the end, mm-hmm. in front of the ruined White House. That is very much the, the standard bear for that kind of thing. So having stated that he wasn't that interested in doing more disaster work, it was eight years before Roland Emmerich returned to the well uh, with The Day After Tomorrow, which is at the time promised much and delivered very little, actually. Mm. I can't, I didn't, again, this is one of the ones I didn't, really review and preparation for this so oh, I'm, I'm I guess struggling. I did so if you want. well I'm struggling to remember yeah exactly what um, the turn of circumstances the, I can there's not a lot of things to talk about distressingly though I um, I didn't watch this again but I remember this far too <laughs> well I'm not happy about that at all I remember Jake Gyllenhaal hiding from wolves on a boat yeah that's that is in the, the middle of a city that desperately tacked on but drama towards the end for mm. no reason uh Oh, it's got your pal in it as well. Yeah, it's, it's got I Drew's favourite yes, so. charisma vacuum, Dennis Quaid, <laughs> as Jack Hall, a climatologist who becomes convinced of an ice age as a result of climate changes coming with inconceivable suddenicity. Uh, he, <laughs> he, he he tries to convince higher up in this, but they don't believe him until it's too late and the big freeze begins. Then he treks to New York over frozen ground to try and locate and rescue his kid, Sam, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, and that is your plot. That is, uh, is essentially there's nothing else of significance I think I have left out in a mm. what two and a bit hour film. Quaid continues his run of Blanadine lead performances, and while I've got quite a lot of time for a good proportion of the supporting cast like Gyllenhaal and Ian Holm, there is no human interest whatsoever in this film, and it's all about CG effects, which uh, as a spectacle perhaps have some merit. Uh, some of the shots of the frozen New York have a kind of eerie quality to them but only for about 30 seconds, and it's certainly mm. nothing like enough to hang a whole film on. It's essentially a nice poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's got a couple of set pieces, like the crashing of these RAF helicopters that are entirely tacked on. They have no place or position in the narrative whatsoever. Yeah, because we need to know where the <laughs> queens are gonna. 
<laughs> well, they haven't got to the Queen yet, so oh, right, okay. we don't actually know if she died or not, but we can right. only just hope. Well, I was going to say we can hope, yes. <laughs> Unless she was pretty good at stoking the fire at Balmore. Yeah, and I would normally let it slide in the genre, but the basis for these events is so preposterous <laughs> that it deserves special mention, because even if you're trying to watch this for the spectacle alone, it is so incredibly stupid that it will drag you out of any sort of suspension of disbelief you have whatsoever because the world essentially freezes instantly for some reason. Uh, <laughs> Is there these things called... Um, Ignoring all sorts of laws of thermodynamics. Supercells of cold air, which this really sounds like a bad to be a supercell. But, um, <laughs> they, they just literally just freeze the planet like overnight. Yeah. Um, and it's ridiculous. It is a big frozen CG showreel, which is, I suppose, what it was intended to be. But as a film, it is a garbage. And I also asked <laughs> that really stupid thing. I was like, Dennis Quaid, and at the cost of the lives of some of his colleagues, decides that he what he should do is walk to New York to... Given he's only going to get that, I'm not sure how he intends to aid his son. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal was stuck in the New you'll, York public You'll worry library. about that when he gets there. Yeah. On so, foot. I, I'm going to go and save him by going there to die with him. Okay. Uh, and then he gets to exactly the same time the rescue helicopters turn up anyways. <laughs> okay. That was worth my time. Thanks very much, Roland. But you see, they wouldn't have went if they didn't know that it was a survivor's leader because they're heartless. I All I recall of this movie is feeling that it was just a massive, massive void with nothing much happening in it at all spread yeah. over. It's two hours plus, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, so there you go. My recollection of it was on that evidence I mean, is correct. I mean, it, it, what what baffles me to this day is right. You have a film where so much has happened. Like, you've frozen the entire northern hemisphere, mm-hmm. and to get any sort of drama in the final reel, you have to have wolves escaping from a zoo and going on hunting people yeah. because that's the obvious place to go when yeah. you have this sort of scenario. Uh, there's also this thing at the end, though, and, and if it was another filmmaker, I think they would be making a political point, but because it's Roland Emmerich, I, I just don't think it is. <laughs> but basically, they save the United States by decamping to Mexico, yes. and Mexico just opens them with, welcome, with open arms instead of just saying... No, 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 no. Uh, That's not how uh, this works. You're being unfair. That's not uh, what happened. He did close the borders, but the president had to forgive all that in American debt to let them back in. It was mentioned right. in passing on a newscast <laughs> yeah. that I picked up. But it, it is addressed. You're doing a severe <laughs> disservice to Roland Emmerich's canon of Are you heeding these warnings, Mr. Trump? Of course, this <laughs> country that's now entirely frozen and doesn't have any exactly. economy can yes. forgive these debtors and yeah. get into Mexico. And crucially, <laughs> all of the cash machines are iced up. Where is that? <laughs> Oh, where, where is your god now <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just remember this is a bit of a vacuum really of drama which when you consider the um you know as silly as the setup is once once you've executed that then there's massive massive scope there for for atmosphere and for peril and my abiding memory of this is that it just did not deliver on any of it um and potentially the most disappointing of roland emmerich's entry into the into the disaster genre. Uh, there is probably one film which on a technical level is far worse for me, and we'll be talking about that next. That's 2012, but at least it has the good grace to be so stupid it's entertaining. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yes, the 2012 is more just so stupid. It's the stupidest thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. Okay. Um, yeah, the the thing about something like Day After Tomorrow too is that from the perspective of a much smaller film, there's an idea of something that could work. Like the people stuck in the library, they're, they're frozen, they're isolated, the resources are dwindling. Mm-hmm. You can focus on them 
and the interactions, the maybe the infighting, backstabbing, anything like that. That could be interesting. Mm-hmm. But no, 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 wolves. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought, sorry, I thought we were on to 2012 now. No, I was just finishing up on the day oh, after tomorrow, right, okay. which is why I said something about the day after tomorrow. Yes, no, that's what I was, I, I zoned out entirely. I'm like, oh, wait, you're still that. talking about that. That's Appreciate all right. It. You feel free to carry on talking about a different film than I've introduced. 2012. I hadn't finished <laughs> talking before you introduced it. Lads, lads, we don't need to fight about it. <laughs> Oh. But it'd be funny. So go ahead. <laughs> um, 2012. Yes, 2012. Um, as I said, the stupidest <laughs> thing I, I've Seamless. ever seen, I think, um, because the planet is in danger of tumultuous earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanic eruptions because the fundamental nature of the physics of the entire universe <laughs> goes wrong. It's basically like the grandest scale disaster movie you could think of in that regard, but... Uh, for those who don't know, right? The only, the only way this is going to work is if we posit it in an alternate yes. universe. <laughs> in 2012, uh, a scientist, played by Jimmy Mystery, basically gets on the plane from Washington DC in the middle of the night to fly to Calcutta to find out some information that he could have been delivered with over the phone. Um, <laughs> to say, apparently, in their detector for neutrinos deep underground, they found that the neutrinos, a fundamental particle <laughs> of the universe, are completely immutable... Have mutated. That's what you do, I think. Because because, because the neutrinos have mutated, they are now making the planet's core hotter, which is <laughs> making the planet um, lose its <laughs> basically. And there's volcanoes, there's tsunamis, there are earthquakes. All because, bets are off. All Everything is rolled into one. If we can trust physics, <laughs> all because the neutrinos are mutating. However, <laughs> despite the fact that this is the apparent cause of it, they're never mentioned again at any point during the film. And There's no concern that this mutation might be ongoing. And there's yes. <laughs> By the end of the film, they've apparently stopped heating up the planet and they've gone back to normal. It was just a, a strange weekend for them or something. Yeah, that's it. They just had a bit of um, hangover from a, a big party they were at. So in this um, scenario of a world gone mad, John Cusack is running about being chased by lava because it's not a disaster film it's a chase movie in which he spends the entire film running away driving away and flying away from lava lava that in every single instance without fail speeds up depending on his movement (laughs) (laughs) rubber band physics it's like Mario Kart yeah the lava is mutating (laughs) it's it's not even a joke too if you watch he gets into a car he drives away he speeds up yeah He's on a plane that mm-hmm. the lava's reached the edge of runway. It's like a desperate race to a plane mm-hmm. with his family. He gets in the plane, the plane takes off, and the lava speeds up. <laughs> so what I should have tried to do is just fill the lava by walking very slowly. <laughs> or standing still and calling his bluff. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I... I Look over there. <laughs> so basically it was the inspiration for the, the game Braid, wasn't it? That's the same <laughs> yeah, mechanic. pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. The thing about 2012 is that it tries to take the same human interest and societal commentary that Deep Impact used, mm-hmm. but meld it with the effect spectacle <laughs> of Armageddon. But unfor- unfortunately, in melding it with the effect spectacle of Armageddon, they also accidentally brought along all of the stupidity. <laughs> Only now, there's not an average scene length of five seconds <laughs> to, propel, <laughs> to propel things apace. It is quite simply the most baffling of the movies on this list. 
None of it makes any sense. I th- this is the first time I had seen it. Mm. I'd I'd caught parts of it on television a few years ago. I think when it first aired on TV, I, I never really watched it. So the first time I sat down and watched it properly from start to finish was in preparation for this podcast about <laughs> a month ago, and I am none the wiser now. <laughs> Honestly, it made as much sense to me having watched it a book than just a random 10-minute segment of it <laughs> made then. Yeah. I was aware of the neutrinos mutating meme and whatnot, obviously. <laughs> I thought, it can't possibly be that. The rest of the movie can't possibly be that stupid. Oh, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so drowning in CG as well, the whole movie, and very strange. It's A lot of that CG work's got that slightly too hyper real sort of uncanny valley cg look about it but oh, it's just that, not quite convincing and that lends, horrible light to yeah it lends a real sort of surreal quality to it it's that sort of like it's like the whole film's in hdr or something like yeah, that yeah yeah it's, it's, yeah it's all for me so it's especially always that light the, there's something weird about the light in yeah, that it's yeah especially horrible. the eruption stuff and like when the you know when they're trying to escape from when the yellowstone park or whatever yeah. blows its top <laughs> that stuff yeah with the, the volcanic outspurts and whatnot it's just yeah, a really, really bizarre and ill-conceived film and unfortunately squanders any sort of hope of gravitas and <laughs> social commentary that I think it would probably set out to try and deliver thoroughly sacrificed upon the altar of complete and utter stupidity. But <laughs> there you go. I'll say this for him, Ricky. breaks things quickly. In Earthquake, you're still being introduced to characters at the 40-minute mark and mm-hmm. in this film, he's dropped the entire western seaboard of the United States into the sea. Yeah. Thus, uh, finally fulfilling Lex Luthor's dreams. Yes. <laughs> well, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Just get on with it. Like a lot of these things, the first time I watched it was last week, and by the time I went to make notes a couple of days later, I'd already forgotten why yeah. this disaster thing started off. Yeah. And it was sunspots causing neutrinos to be tight or something. That's I, about it. But fine, that'll do. I remember the, new, I remember the neutrino bit, but I, Never I'd be hard pushed to tell you now what any of the motivations of any of the characters were or any of the other incidental stuff happening. No. How it arose almost almost pointless the stuff the arc stuff and whatnot you probably could have excised that from the end of it you should just have made it about john cusack's character yeah i don't yeah it's a bizarre bloated mess well this is just a bit like armageddon too they basically have no warning this is going to happen then construct these arcs mm-hmm. overnight yeah basically it's well, like that's the chinese for you isn't yeah, it quick They're quick, <laughs> quick. <laughs> The only thing that is, I think, of any lasting historical merit is I think it's probably the peak of destruction yeah. uh, that you'll see in a film. If That's it, what I was going to say. It's, uh, it's, again, uh, raising the stakes, yeah. movie on movie. You the only option available to Emmerich, and this is just, well, it just has to be everything happening at once, <laughs> yes. basically. Yeah, because then you end up, so like, there's only the Himalayas basically above water. I'm not <laughs> sure where all this water comes from, because I don't no. think there's that much water on the planet. I'm pretty but... sure we have to abide with the water that's already here, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we can't multiply so, yeah, it. The, the only way to go for it is to actually have a disaster film that destroys the planet. Um, yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, you flooded the entire thing. You've basically made it like Genesis, the Bible. But uh, Plus, I think now that superhero uh, movies have taken over the mantle of destroying landmarks, mm-hmm. uh, that's the other sort of linchpin of the disaster genre that's been taken away from them now. So there's now probably not really much of a reason to make any more disaster movies because mm. we've already got the Moth of Golden Gate Bridge being destroyed by Magneto umpteen times and all these kind of things. So. Yeah. Uh, we may never see its likes again, and I'm not actually all that sad on this grand scale. Thing, we've uh, come you, so far now that actually um, you have the Golden Gate Bridge not being destroyed as a sign of <laughs> reversal. <laughs> like, yeah. um, in Star Trek, the JJ review book, it's like you, you're sure that the Golden Gate Bridge is going to be destroyed. And oh no, they dropped the drilling device um, next to it instead. So. Yeah, that's it. A sort of bystanders just stand about looking. Oh, would you look at that? <laughs> Thought that'd be the first to go. <laughs> 
Well, I never. Okay, so let's talk about San Andreas then. If if we must. We probably should. <laughs> None of us wants to talk about San Andreas. For me, listen, I'm a fairly big fan of Dwayne Johnson. I find him quite charismatic. He's very watchable. Him. He's in a lot of rubbish, but he's very yeah, likeable. He's mm. woefully underused. Um, mm. And when the guy's given decent material to work with, he's, he's engaging, he's charismatic, mm. he's a really likeable presence. Yep. Yeah. It should be hard to see past the man's physique. Yeah. But he's he's capable of delivering that. Yeah, he's not just a block of meat. Unfortunately, in San Andreas, he is just a block of meat. <laughs> yes. A a bizarrely, well, it's not even bizarrely conceived film. It's a film which takes so many tropes and steadfastly refuses to put <laughs> any kind of spin. Yeah, onto them. Any kind of modern reinterpretation of the disaster genre you were hoping for will be woefully abandoned. Because if anything, this is less cohesive than something <laughs> like Earthquake. Which is obviously, yeah, obviously the film it's aiming to, or or and which in theme it's closest to. Anybody want to offer some? Well, first of all, like most of these last movies, something you said that, but it's like the San Andreas fault is cracking, which is been known to do. Yeah, it happens. And then there are two things going on at the same time. One is that Paul Giamatti and his colleagues, who he's a seismologist, have been Paul Giamatti. Poor Paul Giamatti. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't deserve this. He's far too good an actor. This, this is one. This is his one for the studio, like. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and delivered with all the enthusiasm. And so, yeah. <laughs> Bless him. He does. He do, he, he's, <laughs> no, come on. Paul G. Matty actually makes a real effort in this. And it's, <laughs> he, he really does. It's, but do you know what? Paul G. Matty, I don't think, is capable of, of not making a yeah. But he sticks out like a sore thumb in this. You feel <laughs> sorry for him in every scene, but yeah. I digress. Yeah, so Paul G. Matty and his colleagues are investigating whether they can predict earthquakes. Mm-hmm. Okay. They've detected some sort of magnetic disturbance before an earthquake, which is okay. Apparently, at the beginning of this film, because it changes later on, at the beginning of this film, this technology enables them to predict an earthquake in advance by about a good 10 or 12 seconds. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right, I mean, literally, seconds after discovering that their theory is correct, a massive earthquake starts that they had no warning of, so it proves <laughs> it isn't correct. But, <laughs> and uh, what are the odds of that? A massive earthquake strikes San Andreas Fault, destroys the Hoover Dam, and this begins a massive series of earthquakes in California and what then happens is that the prediction technology then starts working when it's convenient <laughs> so that they can predict that there will be another bigger earthquake in San Francisco that also the uh, San Andreas Fault connects with another larger um, fault. Immediately undiscovered fault. A previously <laughs> undiscovered mm-hmm. fault deeper into Nevada and Colorado, I think, into California as well, that will all link up and possibly drop the entire western seaboard of the United States into the sea. Does that sound familiar? In <laughs> mm-hmm. amongst this, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, is a, a rescue pilot who is basically, as Craig mentioned, a hunk of meat because he's at some point able to rescue someone by tearing the door off of a car. Yeah. He's, well, of course, yes. He's, um, he is that strong. And his daughter gets trapped in an earthquake in San Francisco and he does something similar to Dennis Quaid in The Day After Tomorrow, but with actual being able to effect some change, mm-hmm. decides to head north to actually rescue. Actually using a sensible mode of transport once yeah, or twice. and he's actually able to do something. I mean, there's some <laughs> merit here in that there's like, you know, the fact there's some characters with some competence is quite appealing. That did appeal to me quite a lot because... Uh, yeah. Compton, and he's doing not so stupid things as is his wife, as is his mm-hmm. kid, as, as his is daughter, the, uh, the, the boy yeah. that he um, meets. So, yeah, Taylor's supposed to be um, teenage girl, and 
way of most American films. She's probably 35. There's something <laughs> like 29 or something when they filmed it. Yeah. But yeah, so his daughter, because he's prepared her, she's not the damsel in distress in the same way. Mm-hmm. He is... Um, she displays some degree of resourcefulness. Calm, competent, knows what she's doing and doesn't panic. So that there, there are good points. That's to be lauded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dwayne Johnson... So sort of, I was going to say believable in the role, maybe a bit sort of calming, fairly calm influence. It's not a great role for him, but in this role, it's a sensible mode of transport, you say, Craig. It's all got it going for it in terms of like the character makes sense. Nobody's panicking. There's a, an earthquake. Okay. But then it just keep turning the ante up every time. <laughs> and for some reason, I saw this in the cinema and thought it was quite good. And I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot to take my brain that day because I rewatched a couple of weeks ago. And everything about this film is terrible. i say a couple of examples because what I decided to do is I really just want to tear into it now because it's ridiculously mm-hmm. stupid. <laughs> Even my mum and dad laughed at this film. Can I just give one example before we go all negative because I thought this was actually going to do something mildly clever at the start because it's got... Um, mm-hmm. and it's a cast for the most part that I quite like. Um, yeah, not, yeah, not just Paul Giamatti, but exactly. Paul I Giamatti. assume what we're talking about, but even other guys like uh, a journalist in it, Archie Punjabi, who's not really in a lot of films, but she's really good in The Good Wife. She's actually a good actress, uh-huh. not in this, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought they were doing something. They were going to do something clever with Ian Griffith's character because he's uh, he's a stepdad, and for once at the start, he wasn't being a sleazeball. He seemed quite reasonable and all yeah. these kind of things. Like, oh, oh, good, they're not going down that route, and then and they, they very much route. go down that route. Is he? Yeah. And I thought even yeah. like maybe at the start, okay, right, fine. He's seen something shocking happen right in front of him and I thought maybe he, he just went into shock and that's why he abandoned this girl he abandoned mm-hmm. his boy um, <laughs> uh, and I thought maybe that's doing it but no then from that moment on he descends into an absolute cartoon villain, villain. Yeah. he might as well be twiddling his moustache at that point absolutely yeah, the bit where he rips the guy away from his cover at the wall this and is my space <laughs> Oh. Um, MySpace isn't even a thing anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. There's um yeah, so there, there's some problems here. Yeah, you, you think it starts out okay yeah. and like there's some protection technology which changes pace during the film, but okay, so that means they can approach it it's not just everybody's gonna mm. die, you can approach it slightly differently. The rock is competent, his daughter's competent. You have Paul Giamatti who's just this reassuring presence <laughs> when he's going on TV trying to warn people, okay. Mm. But it's like so every all, all the other little details that just drove me crazy, like um, and the big details, yeah. <laughs> like um, plot. <laughs> I mean, like and such like ham-fisty things, like hello, I am building the tallest building in the city of Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, and it's going to be very strong. Pay attention, this will be important later. <laughs> uh, so same posting stuff like that. It's got. But what would happen if there's an earthquake? Well, I was specifically saying. Yeah, who's to say there's going to who's be an to earthquake? Say there will be one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, then you have. In California, where earthquakes are common, they, ha- they still have a scene where Paul Giamatti basically yells to everyone who's standing around when an earthquake begins, get into cover. At which point they go, oh, we should get into cover then. But we need to be told these things. <laughs> then Paul Giamatti does spend most of the remainder of this film just basically, go, you know, every time a tremor comes shouting at people, quick, quick, get under a table. Yes. 50% of his screen time is spent just curled up under a table. I think it was more of a kind of public service announcement. He's just trying to train people for earthquake awareness. I think that's Duck probably what cover. it is. Duck and cover. <laughs> and it's just, it's got sort of, you know, just such naff dialogue too. Like, um, hmm. people, I think it's Paul Giamatti's given it actually, saying, you've got to tell um, people of San Francisco that they're going to get hit. Not, there will be an earthquake. <laughs> they're going to get hit. You're missing important words there. <laughs> you've forgotten how humans talk. And... <laughs> There were just some truly really dodgy bits of CGI later on too. It's a big earthquake in San Francisco. 
and there's the pavement splits apart and some of the worst CGI I've seen in quite some time actually for by modern standards. Also, while this is the second earthquake in San Francisco, right? Subway's apparently still running mm-hmm. and also runs just one meter below the pavement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Subway is only a meter below the road and despite being in an earthquake hit city with no electricity, it's still running when it, the pavement breaks open and it spews the train out. <laughs> okay. Um, and the other thing is, because the second time I watched it, my, my brain was actually switched on this time and I was just getting driven crazy by it. Right, well, we need to create some more drama here. San Francisco's already bad enough, but what, what would be really bad? Well, a tsunami. But tsunamis are caused mm-hmm. by earthquakes at sea, yeah. which force the water inland. Out, outward from the epicenter. Yes, mm. This earthquake happened in San Francisco, but apparently... <laughs> generated a tsunami out to sea that travelled inward. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it wasn't just me to pick up on that. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my God, it's an inverse tsunami. <laughs> I wasn't... Honestly, I'd switched off at that point. It was a long time before I cottoned on. I thought to myself, There's, I knew there was something bugging me. But honestly, my faculties have been dead in the, by this point, and it takes a lot for me in this genre to be that removed from any interest in the film. I'd watched the first half of it when my parents were down visiting uh-huh. last time, and then I had I was absolutely shattered because of the kids, so I ended up like going right, okay, I need to get some sleep. I'll watch the other half. I watched the last hour of this, and they they sat and watched the remainder of it because they wanted to see it. And when I asked, I mean, they'd been laughing their asses off anyway. Started. I asked them in the morning, does it pick up at all? No, <laughs> no. no. I watched it anyway. You know. I felt like I owed it to you guys, and um, yeah, so much. So I know so much happens that just defies belief. And I was sitting watching it, and it was registering that there's something wrong with this. And it was probably a couple of hours later. I went, "Wait, a minute, wait a minute! How is this tsunamis happen again?" The crazy thing about it is, they they set up in order to sort of explain away the magnitude of the earthquake, right? They set up this whole thing of is it the interlinking faults and whatnot yeah. and the rest of it, right? It's but the rest of the movie is so scientifically inept and ridiculous <laughs> that why did you bother going to that effort anyway? Just tell people that the San Andreas fault yeah. of its own accord would cause an earthquake of that magnitude. Yes. It might not be capable of it, but you obviously don't care about the science of the rest of it enough. <laughs> yeah. So why have you felt the need to go to some detail of invoking previously unknown fault lines to explain away the size of the <laughs> You clearly think we're that stupid anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There's one final bit at the end, which, and it's really minor in the, the scheme of things, but it just, by that point, I was just picking holes in everything. I was like, because they were huge and really easy to do. But at the end, there's like a, a refugee camp set up in San Francisco. It's clearly later that day after the tsunami and after the mm-hmm. rock has rescued his daughter right but there's already this fence covered in posters of people looking for missing people and stuff yeah, and, yeah. and at this point I'm just like but, but where the hell did they get the printers and the ink and the electricity <laughs> to run them it was a, there was a tsunami two hours ago mm-hmm. <laughs> that bit was just dastardly that was annoying the, because how quickly the relief materials got there but then I, I thought to myself well it's probably been John Travolta's flown it in on his own jumbo jet right <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens in the event of these things John Travolta's the first on the scene first first responder with his big plane yeah. uh, it's a really bafflingly inept film just one of those silly movies where everything is ratcheted up to 11 and every everything will collapse the very second a character manages to finally break themselves free of something there's the Jeopardy is designed to to have us on the edge of our seat throughout the film, but it's just so overwrought on every single occasion. Yeah, Everything yeah. that can collapse will collapse at exactly the speed required for someone just to get in. It's just scene after scene after scene after scene. But there'll be a sequel, <laughs> you say, Scott? I was looking at the IMD page the other day, and it does appear that Dwayne Johnson signed up for something called San Andreas 2, which I assume is a sequel to this. 
Otherwise, Damn. it is a puzzlingly titled film. <laughs> oh, that's what I wanted to say. The other bizarre setup thing as well that made no sense to me because I assumed there was going to have to be some payoff. It's set up earlier in the film that Dwayne Johnson's character, he did have two daughters and one of them died in a drowning accident. Yes. And true. later on in the film, his remaining daughter is placed in a similar jeopardy and we think she might not make it mm. and that this is going to be a recurring thing. Now, I assumed that at some point in his helicopter, there was going to be some payoff for that scene at the start of the film where he explained he's going to do that crazy manoeuvre in the helicopter called tipping the hat. Yes. <laughs> that's so obviously signposted. I thought, well, that, all right, I know what's going to happen now. There's going to be a bit at the end of the movie where he's in some sort of bizarre circumstance and he's going to have to be in his helicopter and he's going to have to tip the hat, isn't he? Nope. It's this crazy maverick manoeuvre. <laughs> it's never mentioned again, which begs the question, why was it necessary in the first place? Because there was enough jeopardy involved yeah. <laughs> in that scene at the beginning. There was no need for the for the overhang, for the helicopter, for him to have to do this crazy manoeuvre. It wouldn't have put the people in the accident in any more jeopardy than they already were. It wouldn't have negated any of the crazy stuff that he has to do to prove to us that he's a, a great guy and a mm-hmm. big hero. It was a really strange thing. It was so... It stuck out so much that I thought, well, that's an obvious plot point. That's a very silly thing, but clearly tipping the hat is going to be, there's going to be a callback to that later in the film. There's going to be a big dramatic moment where he looks at someone and says, I'm going to have to tip the hat. (laughs) Um, And it never happens. It never happens. There you go. That and the tsunami bothered me more than anything, but there's a lot to be bothered by in this film. That it took so much money. I don't know what that says about audiences. I can't, no, nothing good. <laughs> I'm assuming to take as much money as it did, people must have gone back to see it multiple times. I don't know, but I can't understand why that would be. But yeah, San Andreas, it was a thing that happened and apparently it happened in order to regress the genre by decades. Nice. So uh, we've had, uh, again, uh, as with our last podcast, we've had some nice feedback from guys online, um, some comments. Scott, you've got to hand. A couple of, we did ask people what their favourite uh, disaster movies in. A few we mentioned as we go along, a few I missed uh, was our friend Matt Toller on the Twitters, at M Toller, uh, who hopes that Deep Impact gets a mention, who has a soft spot for it, even though it's not the greatest. And of course, we kind of feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Also, our similar feelings are shared on the same film by Tenguji. On Twitter at Tengushi, who also is a fan of that one in particular, and he also mentions uh, Deep Rising, which I actually can't think of what that is off the That's top of That's the hat. one with Treat Williams and Famke Janssen, which is on board the ocean liner that is attacked by deep sea aliens. <laughs> so, bit uh, of genre confusion going on there, I think. Yes, but uh, there's a few. I suppose it's not actually all that dissimilar from us talking about Independence Day. No, so exactly. Talking yeah. about that. And I think the other one I've got here is Movie Geekcast, at Movie Geekcast, their podcast, of course. And some of their favourites are, well, we've mentioned both Armageddon and Twister we've covered. I um, wouldn't really call them favourites as, as, as far as what we've said. Um, also an interesting one, Children of Men. Which is not mm. I would I would classify as not disaster, disaster but it's certainly a really good film. Mm. It's more one of these films that is the aftermath of the disaster and uh, more about yeah. it's more of a, a conspiracy. If it I could have think. been justified and inserting it into this podcast, it would have been by far and yes. away the leader of the pack oh, in yes. terms of quality. <laughs> um, that's an objectively um, great movie, regardless of your preference. But yeah. yes, no, thank you very much for your feedback, guys. Always appreciated. We also had a special shout out to Erica, who mentioned earlier uh, for the Swarm Right, for leaving a very nice comment comment on our Facebook page. Indeed. Yep. Which is very, very much appreciated. That was really lovely. Obviously, if any of you want to get in touch, we are available by pretty much all forms of social media these days. We don't have a MySpace page, but uh, <laughs> you, can get, you can reach us on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, or on SoundCloud. 
If you do feel like doing so, you can support us greatly by going to iTunes and leaving us a review. Nobody ever does that, but we had some recently. Uh, yes, I know there's a two more uh, since the last shout-outs, which uh, remiss of me, I don't have to hand, but um, I will uh, certainly thank you very much and we'll give you a proper shout-out next time we record. Yeah, that seems uh, fair uh, enough. Intermission episode. So thank you very much for that. It's always appreciated. And I guess all that remains for me is to say thank you very much for listening. I was Craig, Scott was Scott. Bye-bye. And Drew was inimitably... What's your name again? Brian. Brian. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> bye, the classic Brian. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>